I got you. Um, it's more of the unofficial title for a critical skills operator. So if you look at the uh, the Marine Corps uh, Manning documents mm -hmm. and what's allocated to MARSOC for personnel, the actual guys on the team um, that are doing the work are critical skills operators. So when oh, they when they go to selection and then they go to the individual training course, ITC, and they graduate and they're pinned with their uh, Raider emblem, mm -hmm. they become a critical skills operator. On paper, mm -hmm. that's what they're called. And, and how is that different than the other like soft forces? You know how the Army has the 18 MOS series and they'll mm -hmm. say, you know, you're, if you're an 18 Delta, you're a medic. Yeah. It, like are this cri the critical skills operators broken down into specific job duties or is it just you're mm -hmm. on the team, do what the team needs? Yeah, that's one of the big differences between uh, MARSOC and USASOC, mm -hmm. uh, U.S. Army Special Operations Command is – they, like you said, they have the 18 series MOSs right. with different specialties within that. They're all uh, Green Berets. They all went through the same initial mm -hmm. pipeline, and then they go to subsequent training to specialize in uh, engineering or weapons or medical, right? You have mm -hmm. all these these subsets that then they, they go to follow-on training for. Whereas MARSOC, they all graduate ITC. They're all Raiders, right. and then they may receive some specialized training on, mm -hmm. on a case by case, but there's no additional MOS designators that would be applied. They gotcha. don't, they don't career specialize in a, in a particular subset of skills other than just being a Raider. And, and ITC is the individual training course. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Um, I know there was some confusion cause we do, we're, we're an Intel focused company and ITC to us is ISR tactical control. So right, right. Whenever we work with MARSOC, we have to always, uh, you know, we do a different type of ITC. Yeah. Um, well that's cool. So what, what else kind of differentiates MARSOC from let's say USASOC or like the SEALs, you know, there's, I think, I think fewer people actually understand MARSOC and what MARSOC is. And that would be, I think helpful to just kind of say, you know, why was MARSOC created and, and, you know, what makes them different? Why do we need MARSOC as opposed to just using one of the other socks, you know, like what, what makes MARSOC MARSOC? <laughs> the, uh, the answer to that, that most people probably won't like for my community is you don't really need a MARSOC. Honestly, oh you don't. Um, Donald Rumsfeld decided mm -hmm. in 2006 that the Marine Corps was going to contribute to SOCOM. Okay. Um, the Marine Corps had always avoided committing troops to SOCOM and got away with it by saying, oh, we have the MU SOC, the Marine Expeditionary Unit Special Operations Capable, that's part of our allocation towards the special operations mission. Right. Um, so they would take a battalion of Marines, a force recon platoon, and put them through some more specialized training, like training for trap missions. Um uh, mountaineering and, and different things that a regular infantry battalion does not train for on a regular right. basis. And then they deploy him on a ship and say, that's our contribution to SOCOM. Well, in 2006, Donald Rumsfeld, who was then the secretary of defense said, all right, Marine Corps, that's enough. You're going to allocate troops to SOCOM that are going to be, uh, employed by SOCOM, not by the Marine Corps. Marine Corps is not happy about that because mm -hmm. in the Marine Corps eyes, all Marines are elite. All Marines, every Marine's a rifleman. Sure. That's the slogan, right? So they don't mm -hmm. like having, the, they didn't like the idea of having a, a group of like, more elite or special troops with inside the Marine Corps. Yeah. So they were not happy about it, but Donald Rumsfeld didn't give them a choice. <laughs> so in 2006, when Donald Rumsfeld signed the paperwork, the Marine Corps now had troops allocated to SOCOM. Um, okay. 
Marsoc is extremely small compared to both Yususak and uh, the Seals Nav Spec War. Like mm -hmm. we're a tiny, tiny drop in a big, big bucket of special operations compared to how many troops are allocated across the other services. So capabilities wise, we don't have a large force that we can deploy at any given time, right? We have, uh, I think they're still at, they change the force structure every now and again, but mm -hmm. I think over, overall troop numbers stay about the same, but I think we have three battalions, you know? Okay. So if you've got a total battalion deployed, you've got a one in training and one in, yeah. yeah, right. And then, and so it's, it takes three to make one deployed minimum. Mm -hmm. um, so a, a battalion deployed is about what Marsoc can pull off at a time, which, you know, in the how, grand scheme of things, isn't that significant? How many people are in a battalion at Marsoc, let's say? Uh, let's see, we think, well, when I was there, we had uh, three companies and each company okay. had three teams and a team's about 12 guys. Okay. So 36 per company, you said three companies? Yeah. Okay. So we're talking, uh, you know, 108 People, Oper operators, not counting support, not counting yeah, support personnel. And the, yeah. and the support element is even bigger, isn't it? So that's that's one of the things that Marsoc has focused on as a differentiator from the other mm -hmm. services is the support package. So Marsoc has definitely leaned real heavy into uh, uh, developing not just a robust uh, support package, but highly skilled and highly trained support personnel. Mm -hmm. So they go through a very similar course to ITC. Um, okay. that's more focused on whatever their, their specialized lane is. Uh, so they're called, uh, socks, special operations capable. Okay. And then whatever their, their primary field is, it could be Intel, it could be communications, mm -hmm. it, you know, it could be whatever it is, but they go through the, the socks course, which gives them the basic skills they mm -hmm. need to integrate with the team and perform basic, basic functions on a team, basic warfighting sure. functions. But then they really drill down on their individual support capabilities. So if they were in the general purpose force and they were a, an Intel guy, when they come over to MARSOC, they're going to go to special operations specific Intel training. That's going to bring them up to where they need to be gotcha. to provide the support that's required in the special operations community that's different mm -hmm. from what's required in the general purpose force. I got you. So Donald Rumsfeld creates this, you, you know, USOCOM specific um, force from the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. um, is that about the time you were in 2006? Like, or like, yeah. What was your timeline there? So I joined the Marine Corps in. Uh, well, I, I went to boot camp in May of 01. Mm -hmm. So I was in School of Infantry when 9/11 happened, and in 2005. So I, so you're in. You're in. Infantry school during 9-11. Yeah. Like, what was that like? Like, what, what's going through? I mean, you're talking about probably a bunch of 18 to 20-year-olds. Did, did anybody have any idea what that would mean for their entire... Like, you're, you're with a group of kids entering the military. There's no war happening. No, we joined yeah. during peacetime. Everybody that was right. in with me at that point had joined during peacetime Marine Corps. Um, and when I, when I got to school of infantry, I was assigned a 52 area guard. So they, okay. they, they just grab random guys out of whoever's going to the next class to do things like guard the armories and the ammo supply points and stuff. Sure. It's supposed to be a two week thing. And then you class mm -hmm. up with the next group. Right. So 
I was in this thing called 52 area guard. We're just pulling guard shifts. I think four hour shifts, 24 hours a day for like a two week period. Yeah. So it's supposed to be. So we're doing that and we're sitting in the barracks one day and the sergeant comes in and says, uh, twin towers just got knocked down. We're going to war and walks back out. Holy shit. And, and of course that's, and we're 18 years old, dude. Right. I'm from the middle of Wisconsin. Yeah. Like, I'm like, what's he mean? Twin towers. What's he talking about? Like, I don't know what world trade center was. Yeah. I come from a town with 1800 people in the middle of Wisconsin. I, I think I've been to New York at that point, yeah. but I didn't know what a world trade center was. I didn't have a reason to, <laughs> you know, like it didn't mean, it didn't mean yeah. much to me at the time. And we're in a barracks. We don't have television or anything like that. Smartphones weren't a thing yet. We all would run to the pay phones at the end of the day to try to call our girlfriends. Um, because I mean, we didn't have cell phones yet. Like, right. like cell phones were a thing, but not everybody had one yeah. or like two weeks out of boot camp. you know, so people just got money for the first time. Um, so we were very, very, uh, restricted on the, the amount of information we had at that point, but we knew things were serious when they said, uh, your guard duty has been extended by a month because they're shortening up the training cycle for infantry Marines coming out of boot camp, and they're trying to push as many through as they can mm -hmm. because we're expecting to deploy massive amounts of troops almost immediately. And we're like, okay, so yeah, something's happening. Something, here. something's definitely going on. Little did I know that that would equate to me spending the next 13 years at war in two theaters. Um, you know, when I left active duty in December of 2013, my peer group that stayed in ended up being at war in both those theaters for their entire 20 year career. Yeah. I mean, I was in Iraq in 03, 05, and then my peer group after I got out were back in Iraq again fighting ISIS mm -hmm. in the teens, right? Like six, 15, 16, 17, they're back in Iraq again. Amazing. Fighting a different enemy this time, right? And we were still in Afghanistan from 01 all the way up until, what mm -hmm. was it, a year and a half, two years ago when we shut that one down? Yeah. Um, so we ended up spending the longest time at war of any generation of u.s troops ever i mean right. vietnam was 10 years uh world war ii was what six mm -hmm. korea was two three uh before the armistice so yeah we had no idea that that one day was going to turn into 20 years of continuous warfare and the development of rsoc right well that's that's crazy to consider so so you're in boot camp drill sergeant comes in and says towers are struck we're going to war I know you Marines. I know you Marines. <laughs> Y'all are like going, yes. Game day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get it. I get I get that. And, yeah. and obviously the years to follow um, probably have aged you a little bit and, you know, maybe caused you to reflect back a little bit. I always see Marines, uh, because we live here in Wilmington and we see young Marines and I can just, I can point out a Marine a mile away. I'm like, yeah. short hair, Yeah. you know, kid, uh, he's got a group of, Three others with them, you know, walking None of them are dressed town. the same. <laughs> None of them are dressed exactly. One of them's kind of weird, which is always the case. They're all kind of weird. And they're, you know, they they have all the bravado in the world, which is which is great. And I think you want that from from a young Marine, right? You want them to be like kind of headstrong and think that they can rule the world. So, yeah. Boot camp does a great job of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about too is uh, and maybe we can kind of go through your career and then get into it, but, um, like the evolution of what's happening with the military and, and I know your face right there, oh, like, I get it, right. It's like, it's, man. but you know, it's here, here's the, the tough thing about that. Right. So talk about what's going on in the military right now. And you got guys like me and my peer group who are just mortified mm -hmm. by what's going on in the military. 
But also, if you think back to past generations, there were other guys who were mortified by changes that took place during their time period. Right. Right. So there's always change. Mm -hmm. And it always seems like the end of the world to the, the people that sure. are, are used to it being the way that it's been for 20 or 30 years or maybe longer. Yeah. So it's it's you got to balance out mm -hmm. your reaction to it with context of we've been through change before as well yeah. and survived and the military is still effective and productive. So it's tough. It's easy to get worked up and say, mm -hmm. I don't agree with everything. And then you look back at some of the other changes the military has gone through, which ended up being the right decisions yeah. in the long run. So yeah. it's tough, but yeah, we can get into it if you want. Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a little different. It's a little different if you, disagree with the new uniform that's coming out, right? Like that's kind of like, yeah, we all have our favorite uniforms and things like that. And everyone on the outside can debate that because it's visible and something like that. Right. But that's different than, let's say, a discussion around lowering standards. I'll give you an example. Yeah, that's a great one. Let's yeah. get into that one. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I read this article the other day. Um, it was from the uh, Marine, Marine Corps Times, I think. Uh, yeah, Marine Times. Um, and this and, and this is into that kind of lowering standards thing. The Corps will now let some enlisted Marines who have twice been passed over for a promotion stay in service in a bid to boost retention. So this is getting rid of the up or out policy, basically. What what are your and and I'm and this isn't the only policy, obviously. That's, right, right. It's on the chopping block. Right. And you can you can find a dozen examples from the other services as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah not but, just the Marine Corps. But your experiences in the Marine Corps, like what are, what are your thoughts on getting rid of that standard, the up, up or out? Like I would, I would double down on tightening up the standard because mm -hmm. let's face it, the minimum standard to be a Marine is not that high. It's, it's not mm -hmm. like the lowest bar you have to pass to be a Marine is pretty low. Mm -hmm. It's not that difficult. Right. So if you're getting passed for promotion, you, you are not, there's a lot you're not doing right. And are you the guy that we want to stay around and, and lead other people? Because the way the Marine Corps works, like you said, the up or out policy, that means like you're either, you're not just promote, or you're not just progressing in pay, mm -hmm. you're progressing in responsibility and you're being put right. in charge of more people. So if you don't have what it takes to be in charge of yourself and meet minimum standards, are you the guy we want to be in charge of other people? and make sure they're meeting the standards? Probably not, right? Like mm -hmm. we don't have a professional private in the US military. Right. Like if you go over to, uh, you know, the British military, you have a guy there that can be a private for his entire 20 years. He stays a rifleman on the team because that's where his potential ends. That's where his comfort zone ends. Now he can continue to get paid more and get pay increases and longevity pay, but they're not gonna force leadership onto a guy who's not Right. capable he's and not, not and not ready for it. And they're like, well, he's a good, good rifleman. He's a good private. Should we kick him out just because he's not going to be a good sergeant? Right. Well, no, if he's a good rifleman, then keep him around. The Marine Corps policy is, well, if he's a good rifleman, but he's not going to be a good sergeant, we got to get rid of him. Mm -hmm. Um, which I mean, you can argue that all day long, whether that's a good policy or not. But yeah. I think, I think the idea of saying, well, this guy can't get his act together and get promoted twice already. Let's invest more time and resources into this guy who can't get his act together to try and force him to lead other people when he can't lead himself rather than, than cut your losses and work on developing the next, the next guy in line. Mm -hmm. You know, if you got an E6 who can't do it, there's a hungry E5 there. There's a hungry sergeant out there that, that is capable of doing it and can do it. 
and you've got this E6 that's taken that promotion spot that's not allowing that sergeant to move up in rank because right. there's this deadbeat sitting in front of him. Well, get him out, get him gone. Let the new guy take over. And and that that retention policy that they're looking at scraping, it's obviously in reaction to the recruiting problem. I mean, that's what it really is. Well, it's reaction to the recruiting problem and, and the retention problem. But the retention, you don't solve... It's like business, right? Like you, you run a company, we've all been in business. You don't fix personnel problems by, by trying to cater to your, your the worst lowest, performers. Lowest echelon. Right? What's that do? It de-incentivizes your best mm -hmm. performers. So when you see resources and time being spent on the worst performers, what do the best performers decide to do? Yeah, they're like, they're like get me out of here. I'm out of here. I'm gonna go somewhere where I'm valued. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what happens in the military when guys don't feel like they're being taken care of and, and being treated properly and receiving the right advancement opportunities, but they see the people not performing, mm -hmm. receiving the resources and the attention to try and get them ahead. Well, where's the incentive to be a top performer and stick around the organization? It's just not there. Yeah, you can be a, in the, in the army we have, and I'm sure this is the same in the Marine Corps, maybe a little bit different. In the army, we have the E4 mafia. Right. Yeah. There's so many people that get kind of stuck at that E4 level and they can't kind of get to the next one. Or sometimes they just come in as E4. I think if you have a college degree and you enlist, you can come in right away as an E4. So there's like this, there's like this layer of E4s in, in the army that kind of run the show everywhere. They're, they're usually really capable people and, you know, they should know their stuff at that point if you're an E4. Right. Um, but we've always had that that term, the E4 Mafia on the show. Yeah, we have the Lance Corporal Underground. There you go, the Lance so, Corporal. And a Lance Corporal is E3. in E3. Okay, yeah. so that makes sense in the, in the Marines. It's a little bit harder to get promoted in the Marines. Yeah. Right? Yeah, typically. Um, so, like, kind of hitting back on the on the recruiting struggles, this is a, a massive issue. You hear people talk about, you know, is this a national security issue? Is yeah. this a, a threat to, you know, facing China and the world? Um, and here's a, here's an article I read from the Dispatch. Several branches of the U.S. military projected to fall well short of their recruitment goals for the fiscal year, despite numerous initiatives undertaken by all branches designed to attract as many quality recruits as possible. A problem military brass says doesn't fit have an easy fix. Okay, so here here's some of the numbers. The Army has been the hardest hit by recruiting struggles. It missed its goal by 25 percent. That's hmm. 15,000 soldiers in fiscal year 2022. Remember, the government fiscal year ends in October. Mm -hmm. It is projected to be about 10,000 soldiers short of its 65,000 uh, recruit goal for this fiscal year. Um, here, and here's the Air Force. Um, the Air Force. The Air Force. The Chair Force. 10,000 airmen short of its goal uh, in 2022. And... Uh, and the Navy expects to miss its target of almost 38,000 active duty sailors by 6,000. What the hell's going on, man? I don't think it's that complicated. Yeah. I don't. I think the fix is complicated, but I don't think the reason for the struggles are complicated. Um, I think it's uh I think it it's rooted in society. I think it's rooted in in the culture that we've developed within our country. Mm -hmm. Um is, is the lead contributing factor to it. And then now you've got top brass in the military kind of embracing that culture and reinforcing it within the military, which is, is just making it tougher. And when, when you, when you were a kid and you decided to join the Marine Corps, like what, what made you 
what got you to that decision? Well, and this is where I'm, where I'm going with the culture thing. So today's generation, and I'm, I, I hate using terms like this because now I sound like the old crusty like old guy, guy, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm 40. I'm not the old crusty guy that's yelling at people to get off their lawn yet, right? But, yeah. but there is a clear difference in demographics in young people now compared to what it was like 20 years ago or 40 mm -hmm. years ago, right? So things do change. Society does change. Um, and, and one of the problems that we have within, this is my opinion, one of the problems I think we have within our country is uh, we have developed a society full of instant gratification um, and selfish people who's, who always ask, what's in it for me first and how quick can I get it? So there's a lack of selflessness. There's a lack of uh, appreciation for service and what it means, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have people uh, that do things just because they're the right thing to do or because it's good. They do it if they're properly incentivized and from a selfish perspective to do it. Uh, and I think you, I think that's contributed for a breakdown in family. To play devil's and, advocate, though. Right. To play devil's advocate, isn't there an incentive to join the Marines as an 18-year-old that has no money and is just starting out? I mean, it's, you get educational benefits, you get health benefits, you get everything kind of taken care of. There is, and, and that's part of the problem is I think the military is focusing too much on buying recruits. Mm. Right. Rather than trying to get people to join for the right reason. I didn't get a bonus when I joined. I didn't need a bonus. I joined a year early to guarantee that I would get an infantry slot. Right. And most of the people I served with were like that. We didn't care about college benefits. We didn't mm -hmm. care about, we wanted to be Marines. We wanted to deploy. We wanted to, you know, go be war fighters. And I didn't know if it was gonna be 20 years or four years, but it's something I wanted to do. And I had heard, I didn't have any family that served. I had a grandfather that served in the, in the CBs during the Korean war and built airstrips in the Philippines. Right. But nobody, my, my dad didn't serve, you know, so I didn't have any family exposure to service. So I'd heard, you know, the Marines are the hardest branch or the toughest boot camps, the worst mm -hmm. and all that. Well, what do you want as a young man? You want to be challenged. You want to feel like you've accomplished something and you want well, to feel some self-worth. Young people you know? necessarily want to be challenged as much as they want and a, a sense of adventure. But it, it, I think they go hand in hand, right? Yeah. Like you don't play sports because it's easy. You don't join the football right. team because it's easy. You join the football team because it's hard, because you get uh, a little bit of status within high school by being on the football team because you're and doing- you, And you get girls, let's be real. But why do they get the girls? They get the girls because they're, they're being manly, right? Because they're doing something that's tough or perceived mm -hmm. as tough and hard and they have the camaraderie of the team. Right. And they're, and they're doing something that the rest of the high school isn't willing to do. Right. So they get the status that goes along with that because they're doing something that's challenging and hard. Anything that's, uh, that we assign value to is because it was hard to get. If it's handed to you for free or it's easy to get, it's not valued by whoever receives it. So when you say, I'm going to give you all these free things, if you come do this for me, I mean, what do you expect out of that kind of a guy? Right, you're, you're, that's the guy I would expect that gets passed for promotion twice that now we're trying to yeah. incentivize to get his act together so that we can keep him around. He wants, he wants a bonus for being there, right? He wants, right. He wants to be incentivized. Um, well, you mentioned kind of, you know, culturally some issues and, and I don't, you can't overlook obesity. This is a massive problem in the country. Yeah, that's part of it too. This yeah. is from, uh, Google's generative AI, uh, which you can now integrate with their search. Um, so as of 2023, 40, 
1.9% of American adults and 19.7% of children. Again, 19.7%. That's 20%. That's one in every five kids are obese. This affects 100.1 million adults and 14.7 million children. That's just one issue. It's a major of the issue. children are obese, and obviously obesity leads to other issues. All kinds of things, um, yeah. Um, you know, like, so you're, you're general, general Roth here, mm-hmm. and you need to hit your recruiting numbers, mm-hmm. okay? Um, you're short by 10,000. Right. What how how do you how do you spur a generation of obese children mm-hmm. to join the Marine Corps? That's a tough one. I think I would take the approach of not trying to cater to them. I wouldn't cater to them, right? They're trying to cater to these people and cater to their 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 selfishness mm-hmm. and their meism. Look at the army's recruiting slogans over the last 20 years. And they've just changed that, which is actually an, they did an awesome job. What is it now? Oh, it's, it's back to be all you can be. They changed it. They be all, a lot. all you can be right. It's about you. And it was an army of one for a while about the right, individual. Right. What can we do for the individual? Right. But, but the idea of be all you can be is supposed to still, it's supposed to, the idea wasn't necessarily a selfish one. It mm-hmm. was about like, is about tapping into that sense of adventure that I talked about. Yeah. Like you, like you're, you're young, you know, like who knows what you're going to do, but if you join the army, you're going to find out like you can, you can take it as far as you want to go. And I, and I really like that. The army put out this really cool video. Maybe I'll put a link in the, in the description on the podcast, um, a great recruiting video. And I was like, okay, th- like they're starting to get their heads around this a little bit. Um, but you know, back to, back to general Roth, like how yeah. do you, What's what's the package? How do you solve the problem? I mean, yeah, I think I think the incentives that are in place are fine. Um, you know, they've got the GI Bill, which is great because if you mm-hmm. decide not to stay in for four, or, you know, past four years, you know, minimum enlistment, you can go to college, you can go to trade school, you can get a pilot's license, right? You mm-hmm. can do all kinds of things, paid for by the government. That's going to set you up for the rest of your life. So if you go have four years of fun and adventure, and you decide that's it, like you're taken care of. I don't think there's a lot else you need other than that. Mm-hmm. The pay's good. I mean, how much should you pay a 19-year-old private? I mean, you see what happens. I don't know if you've seen it in, in, in the Army, but <laughs> I know what happens at Camp yeah. Lejeune when you take an 18-year-old and you give him a steady paycheck for the first time in his life. Mm. He goes down to the, the auto shop and he ends up with an, an F9000 pickup truck yep. that he polishes every Saturday because he can't even afford to put gas in it because <laughs> his payment's so high, right? Yeah. Like, uh, they've got plenty of money. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not it's not a lifestyle type issue, right? To to get these guys in, I think the incentives are there. Um, I think it needs to go back to to the 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 old fashioned uh, recruiting style. If you if you go back in time, you can probably find it on on Google, and you look at the old Marine Corps recruiting posters, right? You've got the drill instructor that says, "We don't promise you a rose garden," right? Screaming at a guy. Um, mm-hmm. right? Where the emphasis is more on the challenge. It's more on transformation. Like what you just explained about the the be all you can be that from that perspective, that's great, right? Like we're going to take you from what your parents created, which is this, this out of shape, fat, right. unproductive little thing that can't get anything done. And we're going to put you through a process that's going to turn you into a machine at the end of it. And we're going to give you 
all the benefits and education you need to succeed for the rest of your life if you decide you mm -hmm. don't want to stay with us forever. Right? That, that's the kind of person you want, somebody that wants to go through that, that wants to become better and wants to be part of more, right? So we need to put an emphasis in our country back on, on service. Uh, the media has done a great job over the last several years of, of trying to divide us up into different mm -hmm. subcategories, uh, ruin patriotism, get us arguing amongst ourselves. It's really hard to convince a, a kid then when that's what they're surrounded with, that America matters. When you've got people telling you all the time that it doesn't matter, that America's terrible because we do all these things. Right. How do you get somebody to join the military if that's the messaging they're getting all the time from uh, through the media? Yeah, how do you how do you recruit a black child when they're told nonstop how evil America is because of slavery uh, hundreds of years ago? Or now, or now a white child is being taught that they're terrible. And the patriarchy, the white patriarchy is terrible because of mm -hmm. things that happened in the past too. Right. Well, now, now I'm just supporting. Why would you fight? For I'm just supporting. I'm just supporting this terrible system that's responsible for all these past atrocities. If I if I participate in that, right? So there's there's a lot of negative messaging uh, about America, about the military, about the, about the country. Not to mention the breakdown of family, uh, family mm -hmm. values. You know, there's church attendance isn't great and that sort of thing, which right. which creates this sense of service and selflessness, which is what you want in the military. You don't want a bunch of individuals that are there for themselves. Right. How does that shake out when you put, you know, 50 guys in a combat environment together and they're all there for their own personal mm -hmm. reasons? They're not there for the country and they're not there for each other. So, I mean, you're, and you're not just talking from a place of ignorance, you're talking from experience. Yeah. So I was, I was hoping maybe you could, we could go through some of that experience, you know, like you, you get through your basic training, you go through, um, everything like what, at what point do you join MARSOC and then when to, when does all the deployment start? Yeah. So it was 2005. I was deployed, uh, to Al Qaim, Iraq, uh, huh. with third battalion, second Marines and, I re-enlisted while I was there uh, for another four years. And I had the option in the Marine Corps when you re-enlist, uh, a lot of times mm -hmm. you can reserve an option for orders, which means you get to pick where you're going next. Nice. So you could say, I want to go to this unit on the West Coast. I want to go do a B billet, like be a drill instructor, or be an instructor mm -hmm. at the School of Infantry or something like that, which is usually what a lot of guys do because that's part of the promotion process. You do a B billet, it makes you more eligible for promotion down the road, yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. So I had this option for orders. I didn't really know what I was going to do yet. I had time to think about it. My uh, operations officer, uh, Major Johnny Day at the time, called mm -hmm. me into his office. He's like, hey man, what are you doing when we get back from deployment? It's like, sir, I don't, I don't know. I have option for orders. I'm not real sure. He's yeah. like, well, I'm going to this new unit called FMTU. It's Foreign Military Training Unit. Yeah. So I've never heard of it. He goes, well, it's brand new. I never heard of it either till the other day, but it sounds like it's going to be fun. It's going to be a bunch of sergeants on a team together doing stuff. Uh, you should check it out. I said, all right. So I said, I'll check it out. You know, what do I got to do? So he sent an email to the master guns that was at the unit at the time. And um, they set me up for when I got back from deployment to come over and it, like an interview or something with the master guns. So I went over there to this FMTU, the foreign military training unit when I got back and uh, the master guns was actually out of office. So some other master sergeant was there and mm -hmm. he's like, all right, yeah, this is what we do. Do you think you want to come over? I said, yeah, it sounds fun. It's like, all right, well, we'll get your orders issued then. So it was like pretty simple. Right. 
And then I found out it's even simpler than that because I get there and I find out other guys just woke up in the morning with orders. They didn't ever even <laughs> heard of it. They just woke up and they're like, oh, I got to go to this. What's, what's this FMTU thing I got to go to? So that was in 2005. So I checked into FMTU in December of 2005. Um, we didn't really know what we were doing at the time because we were all conventional troops from all over the Marine Corps. We were mm -hmm. all infantry troops. We were all combat arms from different units. Uh, we had a major and a captain on each team. And... We were building out a pipeline to get ourselves mm -hmm. trained up for not what we knew. We didn't really know at that point, but we were like, well, we need some training for some things. So we started building a pipeline for that. And all we really knew was that we were going to be assigned to go overseas to whatever country we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And we were going to train other countries' militaries, which, okay. which what we find out later is called foreign internal defense, FID. All right. It's what mm -hmm. Green Berets specialize in. It's what right. they do. That's what it sounds like Green Berets to me. Yeah. We didn't know that at the time. We're just a bunch of, right. you know, knuckle dragon sergeants that mm -hmm. think we're going to have a good time. So uh, we get over there in December. We start doing this pipeline thing. And then I think it was, I'd have to look. It was, I think, June of mm -hmm. 06 is when uh, everything was finalized with the Secretary of Defense and SOCOM. And we did our activation ceremony at H1 on Mainside Camp Lejeune. Rumsfeld and his crew flew in for it. We did this formation. It was super corny because they brought the Marine Corps band down. It always is. They continuously played the Mission Impossible theme song yeah. throughout the entire thing. Oh my God. Yeah. It was like the worst, the worst way you could have done that, right? Like and this and this is what you're talking about is the formation of MARSOC. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so we okay. stood in the activation ceremony with Donald Rumsfeld and the current uh, general, I think it was, I think Halig was the first uh, okay. commanding officer of MARSOC at the time. Um, and uh, we go through all that. And then that was FMTU then became the Marine Special Operations Advisor Group at that time. Okay. And then um, I want to say it was either that same month or like a month later, they chopped wholesale all the force recon guys mm. over to MARSOC. So they just took everybody from second force recon and first force recon and said, you are now first Marine okay. special operations battalion and second Marine special operations battalion. So basically overnight they snapped their fingers and you were part of special ops and you are now <laughs> MARSOC, right? Yeah. And we're like, okay, well, what's that mean to us? Well, it meant a lot of really good things to us. We didn't know it at the time, but what it meant was lots of money from SOCOM mm. for training. Right. Right. We weren't dependent only on the Marine Corps budget anymore. We had SOCOM money now for things like what you guys do. Right. Um, you know, so our support started going up, our training started going up. And I'll say that first two to three years at FMTU becoming MSOAG, the Marine Special Operations Advisory Group, which then became Marine, uh, Marine Special Operations Battalion 3 and 4 for a little mm -hmm. while, then back to just 3, and then eventually... 3rd Marine Raider Battalion is what it is now. So I went through all these changes for that first couple of years as they were trying to figure out what this yeah, was supposed yeah. to look like. But that first three years was the best three years of my entire Marine Corps career. It was absolutely awesome. I worked what? with the best dudes. Um, we had very little bureaucracy above us. Mm -hmm. The command structure was not robust yet. We didn't even have a regiment at first. We just had a component and then the battalions. Um, so there just wasn't a lot of brass. And because everybody was new to this, nobody had any experience, nobody knew what really we were supposed to be doing. So we could pretty much do whatever we wanted. So we'd look at a mission, they'd say, hey, you're going to go to Tajikistan. That was the first deployment I had was Tajikistan. Like, you're going to go work with the- Hold on a second. Where yeah. is Tajikistan? 
<laughs> it borders Afghanistan and China. Uh, I am supposed to be this geo guy, right? I yeah. own this company. Yeah, I have yeah. no idea where Tajikistan is. East of uh, Afghanistan. Like it, the Mosul Sharif is close to the border with Tajikistan. Okay. All right. I got, I got it now. Um, oh, you know, of course, it's right near Kyrgyzstan. Mm-hmm. It's one of the stands. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Uh, okay. It's, it's actually just dead north of Afghanistan. Um, okay. All right. So you're... You're in Tajikistan. Yeah, we get assigned to where they tell us, hey, you're going to go to Tajikistan and uh, work with their border guard. Okay. Like, all right, well, what are, what does that mean? They're like, we don't really know. Send a, <laughs> send an advance party there. Go meet with the country team. <laughs> so then we had to learn what a country team is, what that consists of, um, mm-hmm. and how to interact with them. Because interacting with uh, the ambassador and their staff at a U.S. embassy is a whole other thing, right? It's super sure. political. There's, there's yeah. certain ways that you interact with these people. They're not real thrilled about gunfighters coming into their country because they're very department of state mm-hmm. oriented, which yeah. is, you know, wells and saving babies, not guns and killing things. Right. So you have to tread very carefully and politically there to, to do what you need to do. Um, so we had to educate ourselves on that. We interviewed former ambassadors and uh, people from country teams to get smart on that and what that was going to look like. And we flew in there and met with the country team and said, hey, we're going to be coming in. This is what we're assigned to do. How can we support you? What do you need from us? And like, well, we think you should work with this battalion of the border guard who's going to be responsible okay. for guarding the, the border between here and Afghanistan and helping interrupt narcotics flow and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of how we we started out. But because nobody knew and we had to figure all that out, we had huge left and right lateral limits mm-hmm. to determine what our training was going to look like. So we, we start researching Tajikistan. Right. We're like, okay, super remote environments. Even their capital city is not that modern, like they turn the gas on twice a day for an hour in the morning and the evening gotcha. for people to cook. Otherwise yeah. the gas is off. Um, power goes out randomly all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, austere environment roads are terrible. So, all right, we, we probably need some off-road training. We're going to be renting, you know, civilian vehicles. We're not driving military vehicles there. So we send guys to like off-road driving mm-hmm. courses. We go to like rally racing school. Um, yeah. So like we'd go to Bridgeport, they have mountains. We're like, Hey, we're going to take our team out to Bridgeport and we're going to train in the mountains with the Marine Corps warfare training center for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, so we'd be able to design and tailor our training based off what we anticipated we were going to be doing. It wasn't the standard Marine Corps model of everybody receives the exact same training, no matter where you're going. And then you figure it out when you get there, all the teams got to look at their environment, whether they're going to South America uh, you know, Africa, Tajikistan, mm-hmm. and say, this is our environment. This is how we're going to be operating. These are the skills we need to have to be successful. Let's spend the next 12 months developing mm-hmm. these skill sets, and then we can go execute. So it was a total blast. It was so much fun. Did that rally driving training ever come in handy? Um, <laughs> <laughs> in an official capacity, uh, probably not, but it could have, right? right? Because, um, you know, if you have to escape and evade, mm-hmm. um, you know, these are high threat environments. I ended up working in Pakistan uh, right. for, for a while. and Which is the worst. Yeah. And I'm running around in, you know, local clothes, man, jammies, we call them, you know, the shawar kameez. And uh, I'm driving a, a, a forerunner, a nondescript forerunner. Um, you know, and if I... You full, know, full beard out of this point. As I much of a beard as this guy grows, yeah. uh, which ain't oh, you're much. All right, you're good. You got it going <laughs> I got right about now. eight whiskers. Um, 
But uh, well, my two. I mean, while we were there, we had suicide bomber, bombers jumping over the police station oh, a block geez. from us and, and killing Pakistani cops. We had <laughs> mm-hmm. UN vehicles that were getting ambushed and, and shot up. Um, so, I mean, it was a high threat environment. And if I would have gotten in a situation where I needed those driving skills yeah. to get out of an area, they would have proven extremely valuable. Fortunately, sure. I didn't have to use those during my deployments. But yeah, the training was super relevant uh, to what we were doing which is why we did it. So you, you, you kind of get assigned this mission, you build a training package, you go through training, you go to Tajikistan, mm-hmm. and what, what comes next? Well, so we did we did those missions uh, for a while. We had teams, you know, we, when we first got to FMT, they assigned us by uh, region and language. Okay. So I was assigned to a Russian team, we called them Russian teams, and we deployed to former Soviet republics like Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Mm -hmm. because Russian was still useful enough in all the former Soviet republics that you could learn one language and deploy to multiple countries and have it be useful. It wasn't necessary to learn Tajik and then go learn Kyrgyz, right? Because you could still get by with Russian uh, because it was such a thing for so long that it was still predominant enough to to work. Kind of like learning French and going to Africa. Right, right. You know, if you were going to Africa, you'd learn French, uh, or maybe Arabic rather than trying to learn the thousand different local African dialects mm-hmm. because of colonialism, you could get by with French almost anywhere. If you learn that same with going to South America, you'd learn Spanish right. unless you're going to Brazil, then you might need to learn Portuguese, Brazilian. But, uh, so we focused on learning the major languages that would work the best over a large area. And then your team would specialize in that region. You'd learn languages. So, um, yeah, they told me to learn Russian. I, did an immersion training in Moscow uh, for two months where I went and lived with a widow in an apartment and went to language class every day. Um, And then I went back again the following year for another month uh, to develop my language abilities um, and ended up getting pretty good with it in a, in a relatively. You still have it? Yeah, I can still, I can still get by. I'm better at, I'm better with uh, uh, my passive rather than active gotcha. abilities. Yeah. Like I can listen to conversations and tell you exactly what's going on. And then my ability to jump in now is not as good as it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, my active recall is not as great There's as not so I, many people around Wilmington, North Carolina that speak Russian that you can really practice with. Be surprised. <laughs> <Not really>. Yeah. <laughs> More here than we, than we thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we kind of stayed in those, those regional, uh, lanes for mm-hmm. a few years. Meanwhile, first and second Raider battalions or MSOBs at the time were rotating in and out of Afghanistan. Okay. Um, and then after a few years, they, you know, force structure started to change priorities started to change. SOCOM started asking for different things. Then we started rotating in, um, third battalion teams into the Afghanistan mm-hmm. rotation gotcha. as well. Um, and then teams from the other battalions started doing J sets in other places. So the thing started to mix up a little more. Um, with my time at third, I ended up getting involved in some uh, very uh, specialized training. Mm-hmm. It was a very high demand, low density skill set. So I went over to Second Raider Battalion and deployed with Hotel Company in 2010, and then with Fox Company in 2012, uh, TAD and Excess from Third Raider Battalion. Uh, what were you doing there? Afghanistan deployments. Okay. Yeah. Um, what, so what was that like? Um, it was interesting. It was a lot different than my time in Iraq was. Um, mm-hmm. 
for 2000. Where, where were you at in Afghanistan? In 2010, we, we operated out of, uh, Herat. Okay. Um, there's a, a big, uh, there's a big coalition base south of Herat. We had half the base was owned by the Italians. Um, and then the other mm -hmm. half was owned by the U S and then we had our little soft camp yeah. kind of in the middle of it. Okay. Um, and my team went out and all the, most of the team went to Kabul to train the ninth Kandak. So mm -hmm. they took all the recruits that came in for the ninth, basically Afghan commando battalion. Sure. And they spent, I want to say three months or four months training the ninth Kandak. I went straight to Herat and started working on my own there, mm -hmm. um, for the first three or four months waiting for the team to get there with the commandos. And then when the, we brought the commandos over, then we started working operations in, in Western Afghanistan, Herat province up through like Baghdiz. Uh, so with the ninth when Canada. you say working operations, this is going out every night and doing raids on certain individuals or what, like what, yeah, what we had, doing? We had targeted, uh, targeted ops okay. where we were going after specific individuals. Um, We'd also go out for, you know, a week or 10 days at a time on, uh, you know, we call them like presence patrols. We'd go to sure areas that, that we knew were hot areas and drive mm -hmm. around and, you know, wait to get shot at and pick a gunfight and okay. um, that sort of thing. So, so you were uh, getting shot at pretty regularly? Yeah. Uh, Afghanistan was, you know, it wasn't urban. Like Iraq, everything I did in Iraq was very urban. Right. So it was right. very close. Um mm -hmm. Afghanistan, they're, the fighters there are really smart. They're really good. They're actually really good fighters, the, Af the right. Afghans. Right. Not the government troops, but the insurgents, the Taliban. They're really yeah. good. Um, they always employ their weapons at max, max effective range. They always have egress routes established prior to engagement, you know, mm -hmm. motorbikes staged. Um, they, they knew about how long it would take for air support to get on site and target them. So they were really good with setting up their ambushes and, and, uh, engaging from max effective range of their weapon mm -hmm. systems for a limited period of time, and then getting on their motorbikes and trying to get out of the yeah, area before air support would get on, on site and, and, and light them up. So it was definitely a more challenging environment, uh, cause they're just better fighters and the terrain was different than urban. You couldn't isolate mm -hmm. them as well. Um, uh, I mean, we had a lot of decisive engagements too, where it was, it was a little different than that, but on a whole, I mean, that's, that's kind of how it went for us is, yeah. you know, max effective range from their cruiser weapon systems and trying to pin them down and chase them down on four wheelers and dirt bikes and that sort of thing. Yeah. So there, I was there in 2015, but I was at Bagram air base. Yeah. And my, my experience was they shoot a mortar in and then they get out of there. It's just like you're saying, like yeah. they're not, they're nowhere to be found. Yeah. They'll shoot a few of them or they'll shoot a rocket in. Yep. And then they'll go away and come and back the next and day. We're and we're sitting there, <laughs> you know, using the, oh, I forget the, the C-RAM mm -hmm. to try it. You know, we're, we're shooting, you know, 50,000 rounds at this, at this mortar or this rocket. Yeah. And they're just like some dude on a bike. Like, I mean, yeah. The whole time I was thinking, man, we're spending a lot of money to knock down these rockets that probably aren't going to hit anything. Uh, or, Every now and then they did, which was bad. But yeah, um, my thought was always like, man, we're we're spending way more to shoot down these little things, and they are like they're probably using some old thing from you know the 1980s that they found laying around from yeah. when Russia was there. Yeah, to shoot at us, and we're spending thousands of dollars to shoot it down. Who yeah. Knows? Anyways, um, so so 
Were were you in Iraq before Afghanistan? Like what? Yeah, so all my Iraq deployments were with uh, conventional forces. Okay. Uh, prior to going over to FMT and Marsoc. Okay. Yeah. So you're so you were in Iraq as uh, a normal infantry guy. So my first couple trips were with uh, uh, Marine Corps Security Force Battalion. Okay. Um, I was assigned, when I first got in the Marine Corps. I went to school of infantry. Then I went to what they call gun school which is uh security mm -hmm. force training. Okay. Um, and they call it gun school because you get qualified on a couple additional weapon systems like pistol, shotgun, and different things that aren't part of standard infantry training. Um, and then I was signed to uh, uh, second fleet anti-terrorism security team, okay. uh, FAST, they call it FAST. And I was in Yorktown, Virginia. Um, it, what FAST team, what FAST companies do is they send a platoon for deployed to like Bahrain, that's where mm -hmm. I went for my deployment with FAST was uh, uh, NAV sent uh, mm -hmm. Naval, Navy Central Command in, in Bahrain. Uh, we have go to Spain, other places like that. And what they're supposed to be doing is they're on standby uh, in case there's a, a, a need for a NEO, uh, a non, yeah, yeah um, which would be, gosh, I should, I should be able to remember this acronym, but uh, non-combatant evacuation operation. So uh, evacuating like an embassy. Yeah, okay. So like Benghazi should have had a fast platoon there. Right. Why no one called fast platoon in? I don't know, because they had oh. had 50 super trained, fully armed war fighters on the ground, probably in an hour. Oh. Um, so I was forward deployed to NAVSENT, and then we, from there we got forward deployed to Iraq, uh, to go work in Iraq for, uh, most of that deployment. And then from fast, I went to third battalion, second Marines, and then went back to Iraq mm -hmm. with them. So you, you talk a lot about training mm -hmm. and, and, uh, I think that's something that people maybe in the, that have not served in the military, um, think about training is super crucial and super important. Has there ever been a time in your military career where that training just kind of kicked in automatically? You know, on any mission you were on or anything like that? Yeah, uh, all the time. Yeah, all that, the time. Does anything come to mind? Um, I mean, combat, you you react, you don't think most of the time, especially yeah. initially. When rounds first start firing, you're, you're on automatic response, at least I was. Um, so you default to whatever your, your lowest, simplest level of training and actions are. Because mm -hmm. um, the, the initial surge of chemicals and endorphins that you get kind of overwhelm you for a second and you go straight into just react mode for the first at least few seconds at least that's how it worked for me so uh basic motor skills things like that are really what you're capable of um you you lose fine motor skills for a while which is why when you're training your weapon systems you train gross motor skills so like on the side of an ar-15 there's this little button that you push M4 is what we call them, but general right. public AR 15s little button. You got to push to release the magazine, to put a new magazine in sure. to reload. Right. Well, you, we don't train to find the button with your fingertip and push it. Cause that's a fine motor skill. We oh. train, take your whole palm and yes. smack the side of your rifle and your palm somewhere is going to hit that mm -hmm. lever and release that button because yeah. your brain can pull off this motion when you're completely overwhelmed with everything going on around you. This, is too fine, right? right. So you, you yeah. intentionally create muscle, muscle memory patterns that are gross motor skills that are easy to pull off 
no matter how overwhelmed you are. So that yeah. when you're in that initial situation where you're completely overwhelmed, you, you haven't, your mind hasn't caught up with the mm -hmm. situation yet, your body can react and perform basic functions like return fire, reload, um, mm -hmm. shoot, move, communicate, seek cover, like all those things just become automatic. You don't have to think about them. So, so what was that like? You're talking about, you know, using these gross motor skills. What was that like for you the first time that that kicked in? Like what was the circumstance and what? Um, so I think, I think the first, the first time I was in a, a really intense, uh, situation like that, I didn't even have a chance to respond initially. Mm -hmm. Um, it was in Iraq. We, we were in Al came and, uh, we were doing, I can't remember the name of the operation, but it was, it was a very large battalion sized operation. Mm -hmm. We were clearing out this, this area. Um, we kicked this operation off by shooting a, a Miklik down main street. Uh, Miklik's a mine clearing line charge. Mm -hmm. It's a four inch fire hose filled with plastic explosives. It's a couple hundred feet long and it was launched with a rocket yeah. and it drapes it down main street because yep. the IED threat was super high mm -hmm. and blew that up in order to clear the road from any possible hidden explosives and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. I mean, so like, that's how we kicked this off was by, by shooting this thing down main street before we went into the city. So it was, it was a pretty big deal operation. And so we were going house to house, clearing this, this city out of bad guys. And we get to this, this house and this old man came out of it. Mm -hmm. Probably like, I don't know, he looked like he was like 90. <laughs> I don't know how old he was. I didn't, get to ask him, but old man, all bent over, gray beard and everything. Mm -hmm. Right. And the platoon commander says, Hey, uh, when you go into that house, that old man, just, there's an old man just went in there. I know we have non-combatants in there. We have civilians in there. So go non-lethal when you go through the door, you know, don't throw frags in the front door. Let's, okay. you know, like, cause we're, we're war fighters, but we're also good people. Like we're not there to mm -hmm. just kill everybody. Like right. there, there's nothing in it for us to kill women and kids and old people. Right. We're there to kill uh, the fighters and, and not yeah. the local populace. So we're trying to do the right thing. You know, my, my squad's the one that goes into this building and, you know, we open up the, we throw flashbangs instead of fragmentation grenades when we, we get okay. the door open and, uh, we go in and we see the old guy at the end of the hall, dart into a room. So me and two other guys, we start moving down the hallway and we're clearing rooms as we go. And there's a stairwell to the right. And the two guys next to me are getting ready to go up the stairs. And I, I grabbed, uh, Adam on the shoulder. And I said, Hey man, wait till you got enough people before you go up the stairs. Right, right, you don't know how right. big the second floor is, how many rooms mm -hmm. might be up there, that sort of thing. You don't want one or two guys going up there on their own and getting in a gunfight, not having enough people to, yeah. to support it. So I hold them up. I say, make sure you got enough people before you go. He's like, I got it. And, uh, I go past him. I make like two steps past him. And it's weird how, how your senses get overwhelmed when, when things happen. So all I knew is there's a lot of stuff going on. I don't really remember hearing anything. I don't remember hearing gunfire. I don't remember hearing explosions. Um, I remember getting shoved from behind by my saw gunner. Um, like I heard commotion. I started to turn around and I got slammed into by my saw gunner who basically tackled me down the hallway wow. yelling grenade oh, as he shit. did it. Um, and then I find myself like around a corner I look back, the hallway is completely full of smoke and dust. You can't really see much. Adam's laying on the ground, not moving. And we don't know, I don't really know what happened at this point other than there was an engagement in the stairwell and grenades were thrown down the stairs as well. Um, and that was all I really knew. 
So I was, I was overwhelmed. I had two guys from my squad that were with me. Mm-hmm. The rest were on the other end of the building. And at least one of them was laying down, not moving at the bottom of the staircase with, we didn't know what still at the top of the staircase. So now we've got an unknown threat at this top of the staircase over one of our guys. Um, we don't really know what we're dealing with at this point yet. I don't know if there's 10 guys upstairs or one guy upstairs mm-hmm. or no guys. And it was just a booby trap. I don't have any idea what's going on at this point, but I do know that I've got an AAV outside with a 50 caliber machine gun on the top of it. Um, and I know I don't have any guys upstairs yet. So I take the one guy that's with me, I go around outside and I go to the AV commander and I say, mm-hmm. level the second floor, just start putting rounds in it. And so they open up the 50 cal and just start chopping the second floor to pieces <laughs> with a 50 cal. And then I see the rest of my squad at the other end of the building um, and they're lobbing grenades over the roof. Uh, mm-hmm. They're standing at the base of the building and throwing grenades over the over the edge of the building, not knowing what's above them either, if someone's gonna lean over the top and start shooting. So we start providing suppressive fire, not knowing what the threat is over the top of the building. And I get to the rest of my guys and uh, a couple of them are pretty banged up. One's, one's holding his arm like this. The, the platoon leader was there at the time, right? And he keeps yelling at this guy to put his arm back in the air because every time he put his arm down, it'd spray blood all over everybody. Oh, God. So he'd put his arm down and blood would start spraying out and getting in everybody's face and oh, stuff. See, so he kept yelling at him to hold his arm up in the air. Like, hey, dickhead, put your arm up in the air because it would the, pl- yeah, yeah. the pressure would help keep it from spraying out all over everybody. Right. He had ended up, ended up, he took a round through the front of his uh, bicep and it went out his tricep, but didn't hit the bone. So he had a pretty clean flesh wound, but it was pumping blood all over the place. And uh, a couple of the other guys took a lot of fragmentation from the grenades, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And uh, so we we get those guys, tell them, hey, get back to the AV, see cover, mm-hmm. you know, treat each other, self-aid, you know, buddy aid, Corman aid, that sort of thing, take care of each other. And then um, we knew we still had Adam inside, felt like we had the threat suppressed from the top. Um, we get to the door, we look in the whole building's full of smoke and dust. You can't really see what's going on. Um, you can kind of see shapes where doorways might be or might not be. I think we had me, the platoon leader and, uh, my saw gunner were the only ones there at that point. And, uh, I went through the door, platoon leader followed me, saw gunner followed me. And this is where you you asked about like gross motor skills and stuff like that. Right. So. I go down the hallway, I get to Adam, who's laying on the floor. Um, he's dead. Uh, it was pretty apparent he was dead. His eyes were wide open and filled full of, you know, dust and debris and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and you know, that's one of the things we train on for, to tell if a bad guy's dead is you flick him in an eye, in the eye, it's called a, a dead check, right? You flick him in the eyeball and if, even if they're in a coma, they'll, they'll twitch, like their eye will react to that. So that's a really good way to determine if somebody's actually dead is to poke him in the eye. Okay. That it's dead check. You flick them in the so eyeball. Fl- flicking you in the eye, they're, they're making sure. You're yeah, even if you're unconscious, your your eye, your body will react to that. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're unconscious. So the fact that his eyes were wide open and full of debris, like it was fairly certain at that point that, that he he was he was dead. There was nothing, not not much we could do about it. I didn't see that at that point mm-hmm. yet. I just knew I needed to get him out of the situation. Um, so I get up grab him by his armor and try to drag him. And I just keep falling down because it's concrete and it's covered in dust and stuff now and my right. boots slip. Um, I weigh 90 pounds over my body weight mm-hmm. with just my armor and weapons and ammo. And now he's, you know, his body weight plus his equipment. So I'm pulling, trying to pull like four times my body weight. Right. 
you know, out of this building on this slippery concrete floor. And I just kept falling down as I'm trying to pull him. My, my boots kept slipping. And then Shit. my saw gunner gets up and grabs onto him. And the two of us are able to move him and we get him out mm -hmm. and uh, get him outside in the, in the light and see what I see. And it's like, okay, well, there's not much we can, we can do for him at this point. Right. Um, and then I, I talked to, you know, afterwards, you know, later on, we're talking through what happened and everything. And I talked to the platoon commander and what I, I had no idea was going on while I was trying to pull him down the hallway as my platoon commander was over the top of me because we couldn't see. We still had no idea what the threat was. Second floor is on fire. They're still shooting 50 cal rounds through it. So whatever's up there, if it's still up there, is either dead or right. or suppressed, right? Mm -hmm. But we didn't know if now it was on the first floor, how many, anything like that. So my platoon leader had been shooting into all the doorways down the hallway the whole time. Mm -hmm. So he was over my head with his M4 just just dumping rounds down the hallway mm -hmm. into, into all these open doors. I never heard a shot fired. Oh. His muzzle was this far from my head and you the entire it. time. And, and your brain shuts out everything that it doesn't need to do whatever it's focused on at that point. I never heard him shoot once. I didn't know he wow, was shooting insane. until he told me afterwards that he went through like three magazines providing suppressing fire down the hallway into all these rooms that we didn't know what was in while you're carrying and your body until after on dust. Yeah. Until after it was yeah. over with, he's like, yeah, man, I shot like three magazines down that hallway right over your head. I'm like, I never, I, I never heard a shot fired. Not once the whole time. That's wild. Yeah. So your brain just, it's, and you have no control over that, right? right. You can't be like, Oh, I want to hear things. And now yeah. you can hear things. Like it just happens. So you have to tailor your training to account for mm -hmm. how your brain reacts to those situations so that you can get through them on it's like a, a default mode. It sounds kind of like a like a dream. You know how sometimes when you wake up from a dream or or I've I've had this dream before where I'm trying to speak and I can't talk. Mm -hmm. and I've had another one mm -hmm. where uh I'm trying to like move into another room but I can't walk. I'm like crawling with my arms. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing else that makes any sense. Does it seem kind of like a dream to you at this point? I mean, things feel super slowed down. Mm -hmm. um, you feel like things take minutes or longer mm -hmm. that only take a few seconds. Like, because you're, you're right. tuning so much out that the perception of time disappears. You don't realize how long or how little time you're spending on a particular activity. It's super weird. Um, and it's different every time too. Uh, I remember this, this training program I was going through and uh, this old crusty Navy SEAL was one of the instructors. Um, and he said something one that during this training program that really resonated with me and it stuck with me to this day. And he was talking about after a gunfight, you know, when you go to do your team debrief, mm -hmm. he said, uh, you need to keep in mind that every gunfight is different for every guy every time. You know, mm -hmm. not everybody has the same experience each gunfight and not everybody's experience is the same from gunfight to gunfight. So you need to keep that in mind when you're when you're doing your debrief and, and you're looking at how things went and how things could have gone and how they didn't. He said, you know, you could be in a gunfight where everything goes right. You get an ambush, you jump out of your truck, you got your gun, you're dropping bad guys, everything's right. working fine. You're like, you're like, you're like a rock star, you're killing mm -hmm. it, right? Like bad guys are dropping, everything's working, your reloads yeah. are going good. You're not having any malfunctions. Whereas the guy on the other side of the truck, when he went to get out, his equipment caught on the seatbelt. He tripped, right. fell, Just, ate shit. You know, yeah. his nods broke his nose. He's bleeding all over himself. He's got a mouthful of dirt. He can't see anything. Um, and his so his experience during that four minutes Wait, was right. completely different than your experience during that four minutes. Right. 
and it wasn't any fault of his or yours. It's just how things went, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the way you react as an individual when you're put in those situations can be different each time because there's a degree of it that's completely out of your control. Mm-hmm. How, your, how your mind and body reacts to certain things, you don't always have control of over that initial thing. And that's why that training is so important is to, is to override the body's reactions through gross motor skills and training so you default to that baseline of actions and activities because mm-hmm. you've done them a thousand times to where you don't think about them. They're automatic. And that gets you through mm-hmm. that initial blast of chemicals and that, that puts people in that fight or flight uh, right. stage. Your training gets you through that. And then that after that initial chemical dump starts to wear off, then you get your mind back. And now you can do your critical thinking about, mm-hmm. okay, let's organize. What do we need to do? But for me, that initial couple seconds, it's just return fire and figure it out. And then, you know, it's different. It could be 10 seconds. It could be a minute before you're like, okay, now I'm thinking again. Right. I don't know. You ever, you ever been like a car wreck or something where you don't, you get that adrenaline mm-hmm. rush and all the other, they call it the chemical cocktail and you don't really right. know uh, what's going on initially. And, and you're not, pro- you're not thinking from an analytical standpoint, you're just, mm-hmm. Am I broken? Is, are they broken? Or, you know, is everything okay? And then two seconds later, you get that flush and you're like, okay, now I can think, I can right. process, get the seatbelt off, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been in some situations with nothing as vivid as, as that, you know, as an intelligence person. Luckily, I don't have, you know, I wasn't going out there knocking down doors and stuff like that. Hopefully, I was providing perfect intelligence and the people that were were just going, man, this guy knows his stuff. Right. Um, and, uh, but that, you know, um, you know, it sounds like a kind of, uh, an experience that kind of makes or breaks people, you know? Um, and you, you always hear about post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that. And it, it makes perfect sense to me because it sounds like an incredibly stressful situation, uh, especially when you have time to reflect on that, you know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Cause you know, a lot of guys, you sit, you, you take that situation and you relive it a million times mm-hmm. and you look at your own individual actions and you're like, if I'd have done what different, how might things have been different? Right. May Adam have not died had I made a different decision about how to approach that mm-hmm. building. Right. And I know that's something that Lieutenant lives with. Right. Because he said, go non-lethal because there's a, a civilian in the building. Well, what we find out later is that was a new tactic they were developing to lure you into complacency was they were capturing civilians Mm. in order to make it look like it was a non-threatening environment. Meanwhile, they would have fighters inside to ambush you. Right. Right. And that was the first time we'd been exposed to that. I mean, that's what these guys would do is they they didn't care Mm -hmm. who who got killed in the furtherance of their objectives. Yeah, they didn't care. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what was done to us on this one. So, I mean, I know the lieutenant you know, had to wrestle with the fact that he said, don't use grenades. Now, I don't know that grenades would have mattered at that point, right? Mm-hmm. The guy was upstairs. So a grenade in the front door may not have done anything, but I know he struggles with giving that order and and mm-hmm. taking the lethal approach out of the, you know, the mindset of going into that building with, with lethality at the forefront of our minds, rather than there's a civilian in here, rather than there's a threat in here. Mm-hmm. Right. So I know he has to deal with that. I have to deal with that. I handle the stairwell correctly. I told him to wait for more people, but should I have just stopped and gone up with him? Should I have gone first? Would that have changed things? How did I react after 
the chaos started and I knew he was laying at the bottom of the stairs, should I myself have gone immediately up the stairs to try to eliminate mm -hmm. the threat, to try to get aid to him sooner? Should I have taken more Marines to push up the stairs? Or would that have just resulted in a bigger pile of bodies at the bottom of the stairs? Right. I don't know. I don't know how many guys I had left at the time either. I knew I had one, two with me, but I didn't know where the rest of my squad was, how many of those were wounded, or I didn't know if anybody outside the building had any idea what was going on inside the building. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a lot of information you don't have and you have to make quick decisions with the information you do have. And unfortunately, those decisions you have to make are life and death for lots of people. And so you have the rest of your life to sit and question every one of those decisions, but it's not healthy to do that. You, you do the best you can while you're there. Mm -hmm. And then you have to just let it go. You did the best you could in that spot, in that situation with the information you had and the resources you had at your disposal at the time. Mm -hmm. And it does you no good other than from an after action perspective of how you might handle that situation in the future. Should it arise again, it does you no good to sit in an armchair quarterback yourself and dwell on it. Learn what you can from it and then move on. It's over. Yeah, but and, it's it's tough to do that. And, and I could tell and I get it from the perspective of that lieutenant and even your perspective, how that would I'm telling you right now, that would bother the hell out of me if I made a decision that that I knew caused one of my um friends and teammates to be killed. I would definitely that, that would mess me up for sure. I'd be like, man, I should have made a better decision or yeah, you don't know you, if have it, you don't as know much if information it did. as you have yeah but you don't know if it did or it didn't you know right like yeah you don't know how he could have he could have it's a crapshoot yeah he could have not said anything he could have been like hey you know mm -hmm. approach this building just like you do every other building and it may not have made a damn bit of difference right we could have had the same result regardless but the unknown of had he not said anything had he not changed our tactics mm -hmm. is is the question he wrestles with yeah. You know, it may not, it probably wouldn't have made any difference. The tactics of it wouldn't have made any difference, right? We would approach the stairwell the same way. You're still fighting uphill. Right. Around a blind corner. And what we found out afterwards from the, the guys that were with Adam. So Adam took a round through the face mm. guys, and, and dropped dead immediately. Uh, the guy that got shot in the arm that was standing next to him. And then the, the other two that were with him, you know, when we talked to them after what we found out happened was this guy just stuck his AK-47 like this oh, around the sideways. corner sideways so, so people listening he's holding his arms out he to just show that he's holding the ak sideways yeah so he didn't even expose himself he just exposed his hands and his gun and pulled the trigger sprayed down the hallway a magazine of ammo and then threw four grenades around the corner to bounce down the stairs mm -hmm. to the bottom of the stairs right so he, he never even they never even had a target to to engage right and so i don't know that there's anything we would have been able to do that would have been different in dealing with that stairwell other than having tried to enter the building from the second floor and clearing down, which, you know, we could, we could sit and was that an option? We could sit and talk about how feasible of an option that right, is when you're, right. when you're clearing 300 buildings a day. Yeah. Right. And, and you have the ladders and the time and, and now you, if you're on a ladder climbing, now you're exposed to sniper fire and everything else while you're on this ladder trying to get to the second floor. And then you're on the second floor exposed to everything around you 360 degrees with no cover while you're trying to get in. So you, there is no good answer. You, you, know? you bring up an interesting conundrum, I guess. Uh, you said that you're clearing 300 buildings a day, maybe more, maybe less. Um, was there any instinct or any feeling on that particular building that was like, something's off here? Like, was there anything that kicked in that was like, 
Hmm. This is a little bit different. Like, was there an instinct to that? Or was it just, this is just another building? There's, yeah, nothing that really, other, yeah, other than this, this old guy came out and went back in again. Mm -hmm. But that was also common. Like the civilians that could evacuate right. usually did. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times old people were left behind because they couldn't travel. Right. They couldn't walk away. And people mm -hmm. don't all own cars. Like It's not like, you know, here there's a hurricane coming and they tell you evacuate. Everybody packs up all their important stuff in their car, their pets and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And they drive inland. Right. Well, there when you tell them we're going to come destroy your town and everybody that's left is dead at the end of it. Well, they don't have cars. They don't have mass transit. So everybody grabs what they can and they start walking through the desert. Right. And not all the old people can make that journey. The old person can't. So, so a lot of the old people just get left behind and they sit in the house with a, whatever food supplies they have available that were left for mm -hmm. them. And, and they just sit there and they hope to wait it out and survive it. So it's not unusual in those situations to, to see, you know, people that are left behind uh, that, that couldn't go. Gotcha. So there's no, there's no clairvoyance you could have had, no instinct. No not really. I don't think so. Yeah. No. And that's, that's the other thing that makes it tough, you know, especially from a <clears throat> and hindsight we, perspective, right? There's not like, you just, you don't know what you don't know. There was nothing that stuck out. that was weird that you should have seen. It was just another building. And, and unfortunately it cost at least one Marine his life and one probably a good use of their arm at least. He didn't even go home. Man, one of was shot in the yeah. arm. He's he stayed out there with us. They, uh, he's like, no, I'm good. I don't need to go home. I'm fine. It'll heal up. And the doc agreed with him and said, yeah, it's a, you know, you, you took a round through your 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 muscle. Um, it'll heal from the inside out. So we have to kind of plug the wound and let it heal from the inside. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to say it was about a month. He was back in the field with us. Just yeah. Round through the arm, no big deal. Yeah, Going back that, out. that was his attitude. Yeah, his attitude was, I don't need to go home. There's people that are way worse off than I am. Mm -hmm. I just got shot in the arm. I can still use it. It hurts, but I'll be okay. So he took the time to let the wound heal up so it wouldn't get infected. And then he was back out with his with his platoon. He didn't even go home. And he could have. He could have just taken his purple heart and went home and that right. been the end of his his uh his enlistment. But he chose to stay. He chose to stay. Well, I mean, that guy it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is you know, the type of people that you want to serve with and the type of people that should be joining the service or the people that have that perspective of, yeah, I'm, I'm out here with my, my team. These are my people. These, yeah. This is where I'm at. It wasn't, uh, mm -hmm. I only did this for the college money and this right. is my golden ticket to get out of here and, sure. and go put that to work. Mm -hmm. No, his, his reaction to it was we already lost one guy. We're down one guy in our squad. Mm -hmm. We've got two other guys that are injured as well. I'm needed. Their survival might depend on me being here for the rest of this deployment, I'm not going home because yeah. they need me after having already been shot and watching his best friend die in front of him. Mm -hmm. He still made that choice. That's the guy you want. You don't want yeah. the guy that's like, ah, I can't wait to go get back to college. Now I get right. to get out of here and go home. You know? can't wait to go study humanities. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so that was your uh, Iraq deployment. Um, did, how many times did you go to Iraq? I went twice with fast and once with uh, mm -hmm. three two. Okay, so you, you do Iraq a few times and then and start Afghanistan and then man, it sounds like you've been everywhere. <laughs> Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Tajikistan. Those were you know, 
bar. All, I had some other like non- all the finest places on earth that you would ever. Yeah, want to go I to. didn't have to fight in the Philippines. I had buddies that went there and did that. I never, uh, never been to Asia, mm-hmm. Southeast Asia. That's that was pretty hot for a while. Um, I've been through parts of Africa, but never did a deployment there. Never really operated in Africa at all. So mostly Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Okay, so you had four people from your Met. platoon. Commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Do you think is is it linked to that story, or is it just other shit? I think I think suicide in the military is a complicated thing, right? I don't I don't know. Um, I think it's a very very complicated issue. Uh, I don't think you can you can do a you, you can do a direct causal relationship mm-hmm. to anything that says this is what caused it. Right. I think there's so many factors that contribute to getting a person to that point to where they feel like that's the best option. And I say best option, um, not only option because there's always other options. And I think that people that were in the military are very used to planning and considering options and and making decisions based on the viability of the outcome. Right. Right. And so I think, when a veteran decides to kill themselves, I don't believe that it's uh they look at it. I don't, you don't get to interview them afterwards. Right. But I think, I don't believe that when they do it, they're sitting there going, woe is me. I feel terrible. This is all I have left. I'm going to kill myself. I think that it was, I think a lot of times it's a more analytical approach where um, they're able to look at it from a slightly detached perspective Mm -hmm. because death is not an unknown uh, visitor to them. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, in boot camp, we run around yelling kill all day long. We attack the chow hall and then yell kill three times before we get to run in the door and eat breakfast. Right. Right. Like everything revolves around death and dealing it and accepting that it's coming to you and your buddy and everybody else and, and learning to just be okay mm-hmm. with that. Right. Like I planned my own funeral multiple times as a requirement with SOCOM before you deploy, you fill out this big packet with the photo that you want to have sitting on your casket, what music you want played, mm-hmm. what you want read and spoke at your funeral. You do a will all this, like you plan your own funeral over right. and over again before deployment. Right. So you become very accustomed to the idea of death. And that, you know, your, your time's limited and you feel like every time you get back from deployment, you're already in bonus years anyways, Mm -hmm. you know, so death's on the table, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like it's, it's on the table as an option because you're so used to it. So when I think a veteran gets to the point of suicide, that's just one of the tools that he has in his toolbox for how he's going to deal with whatever his life situation is at the time. It's not the last resort. It's just an option that's being considered because death is, it's a viable option to him or her. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that option maybe seems like the best solution when he considers his life situation in aggregate, because I think they're considering more than themselves. Cause most people would look at suicide and say, that's an extremely selfish action, right? Cause you're screwing your wife, your kids, your parents, everybody you leave behind you're hurting them by doing that. You know, so people look mm-hmm. at it like, well, you're weak if you commit suicide, you're selfish if you commit suicide. But I think somebody that gets to that point is considering all those factors. Right. And they've gotten to the point where 
they believe that they're a bigger burden by being around than they are by being gone. And it's, I think it's less than about them than it is more about how they feel that they're having a, a negative impact on everybody else's lives. They feel like they're holding back their family, that there's substance abuse, you know, potentially, or their right. alcohol abuse or their lack of productivity, their inability to secure meaningful employment, their, their constant negative mood, um, or, or whatever their, uh, uh, problems are at the time have become such a big burden to the people around them that they've analytically decided that the best way to solve this problem for everybody else is to just not exist anymore. That if they're gone, everybody else's lives get better. And so I don't always like to think that it's necessarily a, you know, a woe is me. This is the best option for me. I think a lot of them probably come to it from an analytical perspective of my life situation is not what I want it to be right now. Mm-hmm. Death's an option because I'm, it's my friend. I'm used to them and I can execute this option and immediately provide life insurance benefits to solve the financial problems that my, I've put my family in since, mm-hmm. you know, left service. And I won't be this negative guy who's sitting around drinking his face off every day in front of his kids and wife, and they can find somebody better to yeah. take care of them. Um, it's, so I think it's a complicated thing. I don't think you can say that this one combat experience then caused this guy to kill himself 10 years right. later. I think there's right. just so much that goes into that. You know, I, I really, I don't, I don't care to pull large groups of people into a group necessarily like veterans, Like right? mm-hmm. There's tons of veterans and, yeah. and, and oftentimes veterans get perceived and this has to do with the history of the way veterans have been treated in this country. Um, but to, today they're perceived as, um, and I think it's changed a bit, but they're growing up. I always perceive veterans as being kind of like the homeless guy in the corner, right? Like they're kind of perceived as, as weak. When, if you look at the numbers, actually more veterans start businesses, you know, veterans actually do better, um, in income levels than non-veterans. Um, but when we, when we get to this problem of suicide, for some reason, the veteran numbers are atrocious and I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So, um, uh, the average number of suicides per day, this is from Google's generative AI, which searches a bunch of different sites, including the, um, the veterans administration, uh, mental health records. Um, the average number of suicides per day among U.S. adults rose from 81 per day in 2001 to 121 in 2020. Okay, this is just adults. This is not necessarily yeah. um, veterans. Population at large. Right. Yep. The average number of veteran suicides per day rose from 16.4 in 2001 to 16.8 in 2020. And we know it's higher than that probably um, over the last few years. So you have 121 per day in 2020. That's the the population at large. And roughly 17 of those are veterans. That's a, a nor, that's an enormous Yeah, we're talking what 1% actually serves. Right. So you're that's talking 10% of, of the suicide, just the suicides writ large are veterans. I've talked about this before on this podcast. Um, but there is a new there is a new line set up. It's called it's 988. If you're having issues. Any of the stuff that Chase is talking about, call that number. Get some help. It's like there's people that are out there ready to help you. Um, 
Yeah. You know, Nick, I, I appreciate you saying that and putting that out there for guys, but here's part of the problem with, with veteran suicide and the thought process that goes mm -hmm. with it. Right. How many veterans do you see ask for help on anything? Zero. <laughs> no, that's not, but that's it, not true. But it's pretty, it's pretty close. It's not far off. Right. Well, you don't, you don't see a lot of, a lot of veterans, you know, in the military, you're told adapt and overcome, right. Figure it out, mm -hmm. solve the problem. If you don't have the resources, you need to find the resources. In the Marine Corps, it's uh, acquire them. That doesn't. That means if you got to steal them, steal them. Right? right. If you need, get what you need to to get the mission done, and uh, come tell the sergeant when the mission's done. Don't come tell the sergeant you don't have mm -hmm. what you need or you don't know how to do it. Go figure it out. Like the book, the book they give every private to read is Message to Garcia. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. So the storyline of Message to Garcia is they find this guy Garcia, and they say, Hey, we need this letter delivered to the guerrilla force leader in Cuba. Okay. That's all they tell him. Right. Here's the letter. Get it to the guerrilla force leader in Cuba. Garcia doesn't go, well, where do I find him? How do I get right. to Cuba? What do I do when I get there? Mm -hmm. What resources do I have? He just says, Roger that, puts it in his coat pocket and takes off. Mm -hmm. And he figures it out on the way, right? That's what they teach you as a private. Read this book. This is how we want you to operate. Go figure it out. Don't come tell us you don't know how to do it, right? So you you develop this mentality of solve problems, don't ask for help, get it done. So veterans do not ask as a whole. They don't they don't reach out and they don't ask for help, especially about something private like that right. or embarrassing. In the Marine Corps, we if a guy gets injured, everybody refers to him as a broke dick, right? Like you're right. you're like you're like a leper. Yeah, you twisted your ankle on the morning run, but now you're like a leper that needs to go in the corner. And no one's going to talk to you until you're back to, you know, full, full, uh, fitness again. And you can start running again. Like, we don't even want to be associated with you in case your twisted ankles contagious, right? Like you're mm -hmm. useless to us because you're hurt. So you're conditioned to solve your own problems and you're conditioned that if you have any kind of weakness, your fault or otherwise, don't tell anyone. That's why you have these guys that get out and they go to the VA to file a claim. There's nothing in their medical record. Cause they right. never went to right. medical for anything. Cause they didn't want to be the, the broke dick right. that's put in the corner and ostracized. Yep. Right. Yep. So you have all these factors that come into to conditioning a guy to not mm -hmm. put his hand up. Like you just suggested and say, I need help. Right. Because I'm weak or I feel like I'm weak. Right. He's not weak, but that's the perception he has about himself. If he needs help, he's weak. He can't get it done. Right. So they don't ask for help. They just don't. They, right. they deal with it in their own head until they get to the point where, they figure out what the best option to deal with it is. And sometimes for them, that that's where it goes. My, my, I'm not a psychologist, man. That's just my, my yeah, perception. I mean, it, it makes, it. it makes sense. What you're talking about is a, is a cultural phenomena. You're talking about, this is the way we do it around here. Phenomena. That's what culture is. It's mm -hmm. the, ultimately, this is the way we do it around here. Yeah. And, uh, it's definitely the case. And it's a very, you know, I, what's, What's the alternative? You know, you don't want to, I don't want to hand Garcia the note and then have to give him 50,000 instructions. I don't want that. Right. As a leader, I want to give Garcia the note and I want Garcia to go get it done. Right. So, I mean, what, what is the, what is the change in the culture that would shift into the point where somebody having issues would be willing to say, you know what, I'm, I'm having some problems. I need, I need to talk to somebody or. Maybe, maybe I just don't need to talk to somebody. Maybe I just need somebody there. Well, I, I think that, I think it goes back to culture. Like you said, um, I don't, I don't think we need to change the, you know, the message to Garcia, mm -hmm. uh, training 
you want that. You want that added. You need that attitude. That's mission success. You have to have that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's good for anybody in life. That's how you built your business. No one told Nick how to build his business. Mm -hmm. Nick said, I want a business. I'm going to figure this out. And every day I'm going to go slug away at it until I get stuff done. And I spent I, a lot of time figuring stuff out like Garcia probably did. Yeah. You know? um, right. Because it, you had that attitude, right. right? You weren't like, hey, somebody come show me how to build this, mm -hmm. this uh, GeoWint business. You know, mm -hmm. come teach me how to do it. No, you figured it out, right? Um, so it's healthy to have that. You need to have that. Um, but I think, I think there's a couple other factors at play. And you mentioned uh, the perception of veterans, right? You had this, mm -hmm. you had this, you said, I have this idea in my head of like this, uh, this helpless guy. When I was a kid, I had that idea. My, right, my, right. my ideas obviously shifted. So right, but that's what yeah. you, that's because that's sure. what you were shown. Yes. You were shown the the broken guy in the wheelchair. I'll, I'll also add that, whatever, I, right? that I might have a different perspective because my mother has worked at, and she's not retired, but she worked at the Veterans Administration for 36 years or something like that. I was in so there. I've seen, I've seen tons of that. <laughs> I was in there for my, my physical, my annual physical on mm -hmm. Friday of last week. Mm -hmm. And that's what you see. You see, you see people that for whatever reason, veterans are in there and they're, they're looking their most pathetic mm -hmm. as that's they true. possibly can. Like there's Before a guy the like hospital, slouched you know? over with his head down, drooling mm -hmm. on himself. And you're like, really, man, like, yeah. Are you that bad off? Is everybody that comes here for whatever reason that bad off that they have to look that pathetic all the time? Mm -hmm. Maybe, but I find that hard to believe, right? Because you go to a regular hospital and everybody doesn't look that pathetic. Um, so I think I think Depends you have on which hospital you're at. <laughs> right. <some> pretty bad. <laughs> but I think I think you have a couple factors at play. I think you have messaging, mm -hmm. right? So we're talking about veteran suicide and mental health and all that kind of stuff, right? That's part of the problem. It gets talked about constantly. I think that's a problem. The more you talk about well, a problem, shit, we better turn this off. But but hear hear me out. Hear me out. I think okay. the more you talk about a problem, the bigger the problem can become. You know, sometimes not addressing an issue allows an issue to go away. Mm -hmm. When it, sometimes making making the sore thumb uh, the, the 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 prominent object in the room of discussion just makes it throb more or whatever. Right? Maybe that's not a great analogy, but. Well, so I mean, so let me let me there's let me, something let me, to that. Let, 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 let me let me get through yeah, it first. So okay. what I'm what I'm saying is when all you hear in the media and in veteran circles and everywhere else is veteran suicide, veteran suicide, veteran suicide constantly everywhere you go. Right. You're telling the the the, the active duty veteran population when anytime they tune into the news or anything else and they hear about veterans, you're preconditioning them to think that when they leave service there's something wrong with them that the first time they experience adversity or stress or anxiety that rather than just saying that's normal part of life. Yeah. Well, it must be because I'm a veteran. I mean, I mean, look at our suicide rate. There's something wrong with us. Right. Right. Like our suicide rates through the roof. Mm -hmm. Homelessness is through the roof. We have all these problems. So the first time you experience struggle, your default mode of thinking can easily just go, whether consciously or subconsciously to, well, I can blame that on my service, whether that's a conscious decision to blame it on your service or not. I think that negative messaging around the veteran population pre-programs military personnel to leave service and just assume that there's, there's some things wrong with them. Whereas if you had the opposite mm -hmm. messaging being put out where yeah. like they do for business, right? This is right. a, this is a great example. What do you hear about for businesses? You only hear about the winners. 
Right. Right. You hear about Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg, Gary V. Yeah. You hear about all these guys who are making billions of dollars and, mm -hmm. and just looking like they're killing it, right? Mm -hmm. You don't see on the news the guy that lost his 401k and life savings trying to start a small business. Right. You don't see the the, the thousands of people that file bankruptcy every year because their, their business doesn't work. You only hear about the successes. But we do the opposite with veterans. You only hear about the failures, right. the suicides, and the mental health problems, and the homelessness. Mm -hmm. Well, why not put the guys that are winning on the pedestal and talk about them and show veterans like, look, you're stronger because of your service. Mm -hmm. You're better because of your service. You have more discipline. You have a better work ethic. You're a problem solver. All these things are in your favor and change the attitude of woe is me because I'm a veteran to like, I can conquer the world because I'm a veteran. Look at all these other guys that are doing it, right? Like, why, why aren't we talking more about like Black Rifle? Right. And guys like you who are building amazing businesses and hiring veterans like crazy and doing all this good stuff. Why is that not the story that's in the news instead of the, oh, another 22 veterans killed themselves? I mean, that's important, but yeah. the, the constant negative messaging, I think, just keeps mm -hmm. everybody down, man. Well, I think that's a great point. That's why partially why you started the Veteran Business Collective. We could talk about that a little bit. Um, but I wanted to hop back into the, the point that you were talking about in terms of just talking about something, making it more of a thing. And I remember studying this. Um, it's something actually called the Werther effect in, in, in uh, psychology. And it's basically what you're saying. When, when things are talked about more and, and particularly in suicide, um, it can become a social contagion. And here, here's some information um, on what a suicide contagion is. A suicide contagion is the process by which one suicide or suicidal act in a school community or geographic area increases the likelihood that others will attempt or die by suicide. Um, suicide contagion can lead to a suicide cluster where a number of connected suicides occur following an initial death. Now, here, here's some information, and this is on teenagers because um, they tend to be more susceptible to this type of contagion, right? Mm -hmm. As teenagers, adolescents, right? Of course. Yep. Doesn't it make sense? Yep. According to the C CDC, suicide clusters, again, that's the that's the contagion taking over a particular group, particular area. Um, suicide clusters account for one to five percent of teen suicides in the United States. So that's that's a significant number, one to five percent. I mean, that's quite a bit. So it, I mean it definitely it's definitely 100% a thing. Again, that's called the Werther effect, um, which was originally coined by David Phillips. Um, so, I mean, what you're talking about is there's truth to it. Is well, what I'm never, saying. I've never heard of that in that study, there's but, truth to it. but you know, the more you like, they, they tell you like little kids, right? Mm -hmm. if you tell a little kid he's stupid and he's an idiot. Mm -hmm. He's going to act stupid and act like an idiot, right? Like that's where the, the, the whole self-esteem uh, revolution came from with kids, right? The, which mm -hmm. evolved into this catastrophe of everybody gets a trophy, mm -hmm. right? It went too far. But if you constantly tell somebody that they're an idiot and they can't do something, they'll start to believe it over time, right? right? You beat them down to the point where they, they feel like that's true. But if you tell them the opposite, you can do it. Eventually they'll believe that too, right? Your, your people are susceptible to pro programming. Propaganda works or we won't use right. it, right? So if you tell us, population segment that mm -hmm. this is this is who they are and this is what they've got to get out of this is what they're going to get out of life it's going to it's going to end in misery and suicide because you know 
what their career field was. Right, right, right. Or whatever, right? Any population segment, any message you want to give them, that's the programming they receive. Well, how's that not going to have an effect? It's going to. Maybe not on every single one of them, but it's going to have an effect. Yeah. But why wouldn't the opposite have an effect too? Of course. Why wouldn't positive programming also have an effect? I think it would. So let's let's flip the script then. Let's let's change over to this positive program. Absolutely. Let's let's table the discussion on suicide. If you're having issues, call nine eight eight. Just do it. Don't look back. But also listen to this next this next segment because this is vitally important. So um, Chase, maybe you could tell us about the origins of the Veterans Business Collective and what it is and, and what the VBC is doing. Sure. Um, so. The Veteran Business Collective was an idea um, that I had in 2020. Uh, I started thinking about it in uh, winter of 2020 during the pandemic. I'm a small mm-hmm. business owner locally uh, mm-hmm. in the service industry. And so I have the ability to, like, I have to hire subcontractors and do business with other people and stuff like that mm-hmm. all the time. And it, it was just kind of sitting in the back of my head, like, why do I not know who other veteran business owners are? Like I felt like we should be supporting each other. And if I can hire another veteran owned company to help me on a project or to do something at my house, I'd prefer to do that. Um, not that no, someone else doesn't deserve the business, but I felt like I have a, a connection with veterans. Um, I can expect a certain level of performance out of them because mm-hmm. I, I know they all went to boot camp and they all learned certain uh, character traits and had discipline and work ethic instilled and some integrity and things like that um, that were valuable in a, in a business environment. So um, I started looking around to try and find out if there were other organizations already doing something similar to this. I went and checked out the legacy uh, VSOs like the VFW and the American Legion. Uh, I went down to the VFW, great organization. They've done a lot for a country over the decades. Uh, but when you go down to the post, there's five old guys mm-hmm. there drinking dollar tecades, Um, And that's the extent of what yeah. they're doing, right? That's the extent of their activity. So I wasn't finding it there. I wasn't finding it with any of the other legacy VSOs. There's some modern uh, VSOs that are doing good things in the business community, like providing incubator spaces and sure. business boot camps and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But they're more focused on tech startups and mm-hmm. um, you know that sort of thing. And I'm like, well, what about the guy who's a plumber that's already in business? Or the next guy that wants to yeah. run a welding business who's, you know, he's a good welder. He wants to run his own business. He doesn't need an incubator space in an office building. You mm-hmm. know, um, he needs people to support him and to hire him and to give him business. That's what he needs. I couldn't find anything that was doing that. So I went to some of my buddies in town uh, that are veterans. And mm-hmm. I said, hey, guys, uh, I'm thinking about trying to start this group for veteran business owners to get together and like network and help each other out. What do you guys think about this? I, I think I floored it in front of like, you know, 10 people at a Marine Corps birthday thing that right. fall or something, right? And uh, everyone was like, yeah, that sounds really cool. Let's do it. So we put a date on the calendar to meet up at uh, at a brewery, which was kind of funny because the brewery opened up for us. This was during lockdown during COVID. So we held our first veteran business collective meeting illegally at a brewery uh, well. during COVID lockdown, <laughs> um, which is pretty cool. Uh, keeping in Marine Corps tradition, being born in a bar and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we had 15 guys show up and uh, we just kind of talked through like, hey, we think we should be helping each other out. We should be referring business to each other. We think there's a lot of good things we can do if we just kind of start getting mm-hmm. together. And uh, at the end of it, we said, all right, well, what do we all think? Do we want to do this again? And I was like, yeah, let's do it again. So we put on the calendar for the next month and uh, had 30 show up. 
Mm-hmm. And then we put on a calendar again for the next month and had 45 show up. And now two and a half, three years has it been later, mm-hmm. we've got, you know, we regularly have 60 to 80 that fill our monthly meetings in Wilmington. We've got a chapter in Jacksonville. We've got one in Tennessee. Uh, we've got one in the works in Tampa, one in the works in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. We've done some bigger events where we've had 300 people show up, four-star mm-hmm. admirals show up to be guest speakers. We've yep. had senators and congressmen come down to guest speak. We've had titans in the veteran business community. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, like the founder of TRX yep. uh, came down and spoke at one of our Randy, events. Randy Hetrick. Yeah, Randy Hetrick came down. So it's been, it's been great. Um, but what we found initially, you know, what, after the first few was, okay, this is awesome. We're helping each other grow our businesses. We're doing business with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens when you put a bunch of uh, hard chargers in a room is they start solving other problems too. Mm-hmm. They start seeing opportunities to do more. And what we found, one of the side effects of just getting together was, was that um, we were addressing a need that the veteran community had that was outside of the business community. Mm-hmm. And is specifically providing this is this sounds corny and i hate using this term but but you're gonna use it anyways i'm gonna use it anyways <laughs> because it's it's i think it's applicable but it's corny as all i'll get out is we had created a safe place for post 9-11 veterans mm-hmm. to be post 9-11 veterans right right they didn't feel like they fit in at the vfw because everybody there is 70 mm-hmm. or older right and they're they're in their late twenties and thirties. And, you know, like now me 40, I was in an 01 when it all started mm-hmm. and now I'm 40. Um, so we're significantly younger. Our war experience was different. We were at war for 20 years in two different theaters. Right. Our lifestyle's different. Modern life is different compared to the Vietnam generation. So there's just a lot of things that aren't the same. And there wasn't a place where these guys were getting together, uh, post-service. Mm-hmm. And what we started to see is that a lot of the problems that develop are because guys are trying to deal with their issues in isolation. They leave service, they go back to their hometown or Mm -hmm. wherever, and now they're trying to fit into a whole new culture that they're not used to. When they went to service, it was from high school. Well, adult life's different than high school, right? Civilians are different than military. So, you know, you spend Marine Corps, it's like 13 weeks having your entire civilian existence flushed out of your system and being mm-hmm. taught how to how to think and operate in a different manner to include what you find humorous, to include what you find acceptable as far as right. you know your, your your speech and your language and everything else. Well, now when you leave, you go back to the civilian world where they they like that you work hard, but they don't like the way you talk. Yeah. You know, they don't think your jokes are appropriate. You're gonna go to HR for, <laughs> you know, half the stuff that comes out of your mouth. And so that I think that kind of exacerbates a lot of other issues that are going on and it just kind of compounds. So we found is people would come, we got one guy that shows up every month. And when we do our intros around the room, he goes, I don't own anything. I just like drinking beer with you guys. Yeah. Right. Like he doesn't own a business. Yeah. He just likes, he just, fun. he just likes yeah. the camaraderie, right? He just mm-hmm. likes to be able to be there and be himself for a night mm-hmm. and, and talk the way that he likes to talk, not have to be on his P's and Q's because he's worried about getting sent to HR. He right. can, he can BS with the other veterans about, whatever their experience was or whatever's going on in, in life and just feel like he's not going to be judged for it. And once a month he can get that fixed and, and, and feel good about himself. And so we, we saw that there was this draw that, ex, that went beyond, mm-hmm. I just need referrals to grow my business. And now it's turned into, we've got a great relationship with the honor foundation where we've got active duty guys who are getting ready to transition mm-hmm. from active duty to civilian world that come down to see what it is people do outside the military other than just go try and get a job somewhere. 
Right. You know, there's other options. So they're coming down to networking. I've got guys that call me all the time because they've heard of me through the, the VBC network as somebody who knows something about business. And like, hey, I think I want to start a business. Will you talk to me? It's like, yeah, I'll talk to you. But really what you want to do is you want to come to one of our meetings yeah. and talk to 80 of us and get right. 80 different perspectives mm-hmm. and opinions on 80 different types of businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's turned into this really cool resource that provides value across a broad spectrum of post 9-11 generation veteran needs outside of what the original uh, mm-hmm. you know, idea was. And it's I super think, cool to see it. I think, I mean, you hit on a, a good point. What really drew me to it, so I'm, I'm on the board of directors. And when I originally talked to you about this, um, you were at a, you're kind of running it through another nonprofit and they weren't really supporting. So I think, you know, our discussion was more along the lines of, yeah, you just should do your own thing because it's going to mm-hmm. be better. And one of the reasons why it is better is because if you look at the other, and you talk about this a bit, but if you look at the other veteran organizations, I don't, I don't think our generation wants to wear that funny hat that they do at the VFW. Oh gosh, dude. Don't the even VFW is cool. On that, man. The VFW is cool. It's, it's awesome. Dude. But nobody wants to wear some hat. Nobody wants to go back into having a rank. Like, right. We right. just want to, you know, I think like you you're know, talking and, about. And, and yes, that's, that's one of the main difference. So the, the post 9-11 vet, uh, generation was at war mm-hmm. the whole time, right? Yeah. Post 9-11, everybody's been at war up until... Well, I mean, the guys I work with in the Marsoc community, they're still at war. They're just in different places, right? right. Um, but they were at, in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So what they found important in their service is different than maybe the guys that served from 76 to 2000. Right. That didn't have anything going on other than the occasional skirmish here or there. Mm-hmm. Desert Storm, which was, how long was that? Like few months. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about a long time. Here. Yeah, it wasn't a huge ground campaign, right? Not that no. stuff didn't happen, but it wasn't 20 years of, of continuous combat. You know, in 05, I already had peers that were in the infantry while I was in security forces that already had like eight combat deployments Yeah, by 05. Like yeah. they were just gone constantly, right? Mm-hmm. You've got guys that are retiring with 20 plus combat rotations. And girls. And girls. I, so I say guys generally, right? Like when I talk to girls, <laughs> I it's know, like, hey, I, know, I, I know. talk to my wife and daughter. I'm like, hey, guys, what's going on? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm not trying to exclude anybody. Gosh, you and your, your PCHR. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, don't but, worry. Uh, but, but anyway, so the, the, the things that became important were different, right? Like mm-hmm. in peacetime, what do you have to focus on? I mean, the first sergeant, the first sergeant's running around and they're worried about haircuts yeah. and, uh, you well, know, how, the grass. Yeah. Yeah. Get off the grass. Don't put footprints. Are your boots <laughs> polished? What's your uniform look like? Right. Yeah, yeah. Your training budget's small. So you can't, you don't have a ton Polishing of ant- boots. I, did, I remember I did doing that. that. I remember I doing that. that. I did that. Hours just yeah. sitting there with all Cause you didn't ride. have anything else to do, man. Polishing the right? boot. Once war starts, the budget changes. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden your training budget goes from like eight rounds a year per guy to thousands. So now you, right. when you're not deployed, you have tons of time to spend training because you have the resources for it. So you're in the field actually preparing for, you know, you're going to right, war, you right. know where you're going in six months. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it. And you're talking to the units over there. They're taking casualties. So the focus shifts away from ceremony and parade and pomp and circumstance to war fighting. Mm-hmm. And the guys and gals, when they leave service, they want to, they want to maintain the, the work ethic, the discipline, the, the patriotism, the pride in service, right? but they don't want to maintain the pomp and circumstance. 
Exactly. Right. And so I've had other VSOs reach out, like, I'm going to, I'm going to put their name out there. I, I hope that they listen and I hope that they uh, take it to heart. Cause I went to one of their meetings and had the same discussion with them, but the Marine Corps league, mm-hmm. um, I went to one of their meetings as, as a, a guest speaker to talk to him about the VBC and how I'm filling a room with, mm-hmm. with 80 veterans and why their month, they own a building for their meetings. Like they own their own building they and they got six it. people that show up and they're all officers that rotate through the same positions. Right. Because nobody else shows up and they can't attract any younger people. They're mm-hmm. all, they're all like over 65. Right. Well, I get there and they're wearing their like service uniforms. What? Yeah. They're wearing core frams, dude. They're wearing core frams with trousers, like a Charlie shirt, the short sleeve yeah. service shirt with ribbons. And they're wearing like the hat, the piss cutter. We call them piss cutters. They're wearing like yeah. they're wearing that to these meetings. And I'm like, guys, I went like this t-shirt, camel yeah, yeah, board yeah. shorts and flip-flops. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, and they got rank on and all this stuff. And, 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 it, and we had to sing the national anthem. We had to sing the Marine Corps hymn. We had to listen to with anchor, six anchor, other people with anchor. It was six people it's anchors weird. away and all this stuff. We said the pledge of allegiance and all that's great. Right. But dude, like people want to go to a bar with good beer, hang out with yeah. people that they understand and be productive. Or even and, okay beer or even okay beer. Right. <laughs> but not, not dollar tacates. Right. And so I'm, I'm telling these guys, I'm like, look, you're not going to get my generation in here. Because they don't want to dress like this. Right. They don't, even though you own your own building, they don't want to hang out in here. They want to go to the microbrewery where they can order a good burger and have a nice beer in a nice environment because they've earned it. And that's where they'd prefer to spend their time. And they can take their wife there and feel good about it instead of like mm-hmm. sitting in this sterile room with a flag in the corner and, and putting on their core frams for an hour every Tuesday evening, right? Like you got to modernize and, and they don't want to, you know, they, they don't want to. Okay. So, so the VBC, and I'll I'll put all the links to this in the in the description. So check out the description below. Make sure you click the link and sign up. Uh, support VBC. I don't. I know. Um, uh, we're looking to open more chapters to support more veterans and more veteran businesses. And um, how do how do they reach out to you if they want to? If somebody wants to start a chapter in a new location and they they like the vibe of. First of all, I think you should, if you are in the local North Carolina area um, or out in, near Tri-Cities, Tennessee, you should f- locate Veteran Business Collective meeting and go attend one and kind of just get a feel for what it's like. Um, it's more social than anything. It's not, we're not doing, we're not singing national anthems. We might do a toast. We always do a toast to the fallen at the end. I think mm-hmm. it's important to ground ourselves in in the fact that we come from service. Yeah. And we did... Uh, we did do something meaningful for a long time and we lost a lot of people on the way. Mm-hmm. So we always, we always do finish our meetings with a toast to the fallen. Um, yeah. and that's, that's about, uh, the closest to like formality that we get right. is raising a beard of the fallen. I mean, yeah, that's about it. And if you can't do that, then, then we don't want you anyway. You shouldn't, you shouldn't show up. We don't want you anyways. Um, yeah. okay. So what's, what's, what's cool is you talk about a bit is, uh, you know, the, veteran business owners, networking and things like that. Um, are veterans better business owners? Should veterans be opening more businesses? Um, they, you talked about like portraying this positive image of veterans. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that veterans are well suited to business ownership. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, they have, there's a lot of, a lot of things that veterans understand because of their service that maybe somebody else might not, that didn't have the same thing. The military is highly systematized. 
mm-hmm. right? Everything is, is established, it's doctrine. Everything is established processes and procedures, which is what a business needs to succeed. So let's say you're buying a franchise. Well, they already have doctrine written. All you got to do is learn it and execute it, right? And if you were in the military, you should be able to understand how to do that. You should be able to be handed a pub and say, uh, this is this is how you execute this business, follow this plan, and you you follow the plan, right? They, they've done that. They know how to do that. They also understand what that looks like, so they should be able to write their own systems if they're going to start something on their own. Mm-hmm. They understand what it takes to get up every morning, go to work, work hard, work with an end goal in mind, uh, not just be busy for the sake of being busy, right? But set goals, have discipline to achieve those goals, be consistent over time. You know, the work ethics there, the discipline's there. Uh, the ability to follow systems and procedures and develop systems and procedures are there. Leadership is there, which you need if you're going to be more than a business of one, right? If you're mm-hmm. not going to be self-employed, but if you're going to have other people, you have to have some leadership. Everybody that's been in the military, even if you only got to the rank of E2, was in charge of somebody else at some point. You get more leadership training in boot camp than anybody does in four years of college or a master's right. degree or anything. It's all leadership, right? And it's not management training it's leadership which is the yeah, yeah. I, always, I always say that in the military you're for sure going to learn two things you're gonna learn what great leaders look like and you're gonna learn what bad leaders look like yeah for sure you're gonna yeah. get that get that exposure so when you and come i've out, been both right <laughs> well <laughs> you yeah, yeah you hope you haven't been a bad bad leader oh i was time. a terrible one for a while yeah absolutely yeah man because it's like you said like uh initially my my examples of of what leadership was in the marine corps was terrible mm-hmm. i didn't know it at the time Cause I was a young, dumb 18 year old. And so when right. I came in and saw how the NCOs and staff NCOs did things, I was like, oh, that's just the way the Marine Corps does stuff. Right. So that's how we get things done is you scream and yell and you act like an <laughs> idiot and, and that's how you get things done. Right. Well, that's how they do it in boot camp. Mm-hmm. That's not really leadership though. That's, right. that's conditioning for for boot camp to make a basically trained Marine that follows there are orders. Times, right. Though, when you got to yell and scream, there are times, but that shouldn't be your default mode. Right. right. Like, as reasonable people, if we can't just say, Hey man, you know, you need to do this for this reason and it doesn't get done. Like yeah, you got a bigger problem, right? Yelling doesn't always solve that. But mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, I, I had a time when I was a junior NCO where <laughs> looking back, I'm like, dude, you were an idiot. <laughs> you were an idiot. You defaulted to, uh, you know, power plays over, you know, positional authority mm-hmm. rather than leading authentically. Um, just that's how the Marine Corps does stuff. And it, it took, actually it took going to MARSOC and having to lead peers mm-hmm. to, to learn a new way. Yeah. That'll change your perspective. Yeah. When you have yeah. to re- lead people that are the same rank as you and you have no positional authority, you have to, you have to actually like be a leader then to get them to do things. You have to tell people why they're doing something and not just. Or, or get them to just believe because of what you're doing. Right. Right. You can't just be like do it or you go to jail, which is what mm-hmm. positional authority is in the Marine Corps. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's really what it is, yeah. right? Like that's why these commanders. You know, they say, Ultimately, oh, I led 4,000 people and, you know, and I had all this success. And it's like, yeah, because if someone disagreed with you, they were still going to do it because you, at the end of the day, can mm-hmm. literally put them in jail if they don't do what yeah. you tell them to. Well, I, I think I think that's, I mean, we could talk about problems in the military. Yeah. That's one of my problems with the military is that there's a separate enlisted and officer thing. And it's like, well, you should maybe put the best person in charge, not necessarily just because they went to got a degree or something like that. OCS seem, instead of it, it seems completely arbitrary to yeah. me. That's a whole, we could spend hours yeah, on that one. We don't have, save that one for another day. How much time do you have? Yeah. You know, like, we'll do uh, another, another one on that. Well, later. I want to I jump back into veteran businesses really quickly. Um, here's, here's some more information from the census bureau. 
Um, this is from 2021. So veteran-owned businesses made up about 5.9%. So this is about 337,000 uh, of all businesses with an estimated 947.7 billion with a B receipts, approximately 3.9 million employees and about 177.7 billion in annual payroll. In other words, veterans are doing the thing. And that's a that's a great success story, and you would not hear that. No. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw these numbers out here again. Veteran owned businesses made up about six percent of all businesses, five point nine percent, with almost a trillion dollar a trillion dollars in receipts annually. I would bet that that that's number killer. is even higher because this is from 2021, Census Bureau. Yeah. I'd say it's probably higher because they're not really good at collecting data on which businesses are veteran right. owned and not. Like a lot of the states don't really collect it that well. They don't That's track true. it very well. So it's probably higher. Yeah. And I, I, I'll tell you right now, I get those little census things in the mail. I'm not touching them. I'm not filling out paper. I'm a digital guy. I want everything digital. Yeah. Send, it, yeah. send it to me digitally and I'll, I'll fill it out. But Right. But North, North, North Carolina, up until I think last year or the year before, uh-huh. they didn't track which businesses that were registered in North Carolina were veteran right. or not. Yeah. No idea. So how, do you know, how do you actually know? Like, and, and there was no box on federal paperwork when you file your return. Are you veteran owned? They only ask if you're white or true. Hispanic. Yeah. How would they know what the receipts are? If you're black, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, that could be just a sampling of who's registered, like with SAM.gov, which is a pretty limited. Well, that would be very limited. That would very, be federal very, contractors. Right. Right. So I'm I'm betting that number is significantly higher than than what that estimate is. Yeah. If you know the what the actual numbers. number is, let us know. Yeah. That'd, that'd be that'd be interesting to know. Um, is there anything else you want you want to put out there about the VBC veteran businesses? Um, I don't know. I think we covered it all. Okay. If 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 you're somewhere outside of where there's a current VBC, you can follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. LinkedIn, and yeah. uh, you can get in touch with us through Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website, VeteranBusinessCollective.org. Uh, we are uh, open to uh, the idea of chapters in other states and areas. We've got a couple in the works now. We haven't really done any active outreach to to do that. It's all just been people coming to us and saying, you know, we like what you're doing. Can we do this where we are? And that starts the discussion. So right. if you're interested, if you if you if you check us out online and you you see what we're doing and you you think you, your community might benefit from it, then reach out to us and let's start the conversation. Okay. Cool. Chase, appreciate you being here, man. Great, great discussion. Thanks for sharing all those awesome stories. And you know, let's let's definitely do it again. Absolutely, man. Appreciate you. All right, cool. Take care, y'all.